As we discuss corn this week, Cabe and Ken are a couple of freaks on a leash, and we note patterns that are the opposite of coming undone. And from the perspective of New England, you might say that corn is falling away from me the further east you go. This week on the New Brunswick Archaeology Podcast. The New Brunswick Archaeology Podcast, featuring your hosts, Gabe Reinick and Ken Holio. Welcome back to the Brunswick Archaeology Podcast here in sweaty southern New England. I'm Gabe Reinick, and I'm joined, as I am every fortnight, by what appears to be based on his uh, his warm sweater. Uh, maybe they call it a bunny snuggler out there, Ken? Uh, is Ken Holyoke. Bunny hug. But that's bunny actually an, ex- that's an exclusively Saskatoon thing. Oh, is it? Yeah. I don't think that extends be like, I don't think that's full prairies. I think that's oh. just Saskatoon. Oh, that's too bad. Well, whether he's in Saskatoon or whether he's in uh, Lethbridge, Alberta, he's Ken Holyoke, and um, and we're back. How are you, Ken? Very best. Um, it's uh, it is not sweaty here. It's actually we the temperature took a dive last night, so everybody's got a headache, and it's uh, about sixteen degrees outside. Fantastic. Yeah, the listener can't see. Ken's nose is actively bleeding as he does this. It <laughs> it looks like he's drinking a a a Boulevardier, but in fact, it's just a blood soaked bourbon that he's holding. Uh, well, he stuffs uh, stuffs uh, Kleenex up his nose. Um, we're sponsored this week, as we are every week, by the Association of Professional Archaeologists of New Brunswick. They are um, so committed to protecting the uh, cultural resources of New Brunswick that um, they just haven't had time. And by they, I mean they and, and also we just have not had time to actually get that website up and running yet. But uh, as soon as it is, listener, you will be among the first to know um, once the APA and B um, is back. And so uh, the listener will have noticed that we are still, still, after all these years, after all these long years coming to you on the New Brunswick Archaeology Podcast, that we are still uh, called the New Brunswick Archaeology Podcast. And so we're still looking for um, for a new name. And as always, uh, if you are the listener who writes in with the the new name for this podcast, you will get um, a very special prize. But first, Ken, if if the listener had that name, where would they email it to? That would be New Brunswick Archaeology, all one word. Um, and again, archaeology, A-R-C-H-A-E-O-L-O-G-Y uh, at gmail.com. So New Brunswick Archaeology at gmail.com. Uh, the luckiest uh, snag in, uh, in Gmail addresses since Ken.Holyoke, I guess. The, yeah, yeah, mine is just my first and middle initials, and well, I should, maybe I shouldn't share this. Uh, but the uh, so so listener, if, if you're in, um, it's field season again, as the as the sweat on my brow uh, attests to. And um, so, Ken, are you going in the field this year? Uh, probably not actually, but maybe, okay. maybe, yeah. maybe later in the summer. Yeah, sure, yeah. But you you've done those those long long seasons working CRM before. Oh, very much so. Yeah. Yeah. And, for years. And, um, yeah. What's the what's the worst place you've ever worked CRM? Oh, that's a tough one. Uh, Bantalore, actually. I mean, Bantalore. I didn't stay there, but I had to. It's 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 an area sort of north of Grand Lake in, in central New Brunswick. So for those of you who are New Brunswickers, go to Chipman uh, and then drive north through the woods until you hit bog and then walk 13 kilometers through that bog. And it's yeah. like having two children grabbing onto your ankles. <laughs> and and Ken would know. Um, 
So, so Ken, when you're working in a place like Bantelar, is, is there anything you do in the field to try to prioritize self-care? <laughs> uh, always bring a bottle of whiskey. So, yeah, so, so it's a bottle of whiskey. And then, you know, if, if you're like me, you probably, uh, you know, when you're working in places like Bantelar, your self-care routine, it's, you know, you get back to the hotel, a couple of great prime times, crack open a cold PBR, yep. flip on the Red Sox game, maybe eat some of those... Uh, those those uh those buffalo pretzel bites that uh snyder's makes you know what i'm talking about oh those are good i like the honey mustard ones actually yeah they're not bad either but the um but the point here is listener that when you're in the field you need to remember to take care of yourself uh as my former graduate student uh chris shaw used to say you got to look after number one that might also be a bachman turner overdrive song uh <laughs> before that but you put in a long day every day and if you're working in crm you're grinding out sdps you're surveying through alders and of course, you're looking out for your client or maybe your students. But if you ever looked in the mirror, isn't it time your self-care regimen was more than, as I said, getting back to the hotel, cracking open a PBR and lighting that great prime time? That's why the New Brunswick Archaeology Podcast is partnering with a continent-wide network of house call spa professionals. The lucky winner this week is going to get six, that's right, six <laughs> post-field treatments, including a thermal salt glow exfoliation that really scrapes off the poison ivy, the 10YR44 grime, and all that deep that's really sunk into your pores. It includes a hydrating face mask and a French polish. They don't say what that is. I'll leave it to you to find out. <laughs> and they'll wrap this up with a nice hot stone massage using two five pounds, that's 25 kilo, cobbles of washed milk chert. And those are going to be heated tenderly over an outside fire. And that's not all. All this is going to be accompanied by your choice of aromatherapy. It could be fresh cotton, bergamot, or Maker's Mark. So whatever it is that you want, when you're getting back from that day in a place like Bantalore, know that the New Brunswick Archaeology Podcast is not just looking out for you. It's looking out for number one. So, Ken, if the uh, lucky listener uh, wants to write in with the new podcast name, where would they send that to? Uh, that's a great price. That's uh, I, I, I almost want that price. Uh-oh, lost my uh, uh, They would be emailing to newbrunswickarchaeology at gmail.com. Fantastic. That's newbrunswickarchaeology at gmail.com. And Ken, have we uh, gotten any emails to uh, newbrunswickarchaeology at gmail.com this week? Yeah, this we do morning, have. We, we've, got some, uh, we've got some listener mail this week. So um, our frequent listener, David Black, uh, writes, Hi, guys. Please excuse the elapsed time since my last missive. It's been due to a concatenation of con conference attendee attendance, conference recovery, and a rigid submission deadline. Uh-oh. Enough said about that. You did a pretty good job of covering the middle of woodland in 90 minutes. Although I did note that Ken <laughs> kept talking faster and faster <laughs> as the end neared. A hundred points for the title. Uh, but what I really wanted to follow up on is your oblique tongue-in-cheek in-joke references to the use of busts to enhance the visual appeal of offices, studios, etc. There are so many inappropriate places to which that <laughs> line of thought might proceed. At first, following the experts not blank theme. And in keeping with the sort of thoughtful, sophisticated podcast product that you produce, I plan to suggest decorating your studio with anti-Caesar busts. You know, Socrates, Plato, David Hume, maybe. But that's not really much fun. So then I thought, why not get a big bust of Ramesses II and go full-blown bull goose, my despot's bigger than your despot. Just saying. I think that's a great Dave, idea. Dave, we are taking that not just on consideration, but uh, 
um, I'll be playing board board games with uh, with my neighbor here probably sometime in the next week or so. And uh, when yeah. we talked about it last week, uh, uh, he was pretty keen on uh, on some three D printing. So uh, yeah, so we we may have these busts before long. That's uh, that's um, fantastic. That's way better than our idea too. Of instead of having Caesar just having French Thousand Island and Ranch too. So <laughs> yeah, this, this is uh, this is good. Thank um, you very much, and then Dave. We have, yeah, and we have another email from John who says I'm emailing in from east of the Rockies in response Rockies, to your discussion the about air. the uh, east of the Rockies. You're on the air. Uh, in response to your discussion about the layout of New Brunswick's counties in your episode titled Broadly Speaking, Esther Clark Wright provides an explanation of their odd shape in her book, The St. John River and its Tributaries. Although they appear arbitrary today, most counties were designed to straddle the province's major watersheds and coastlines. Rather than using watercourses as boundary lines, the counties were established to have watercourses at their centers. Our car-centric infrastructure leads us to think of rivers and, uh, as boundaries rather than points of connection, but when the rivers were the primary mode of transportation through the province, it made sense to have a single administrative body for communities on both sides of the river. The counties weren't all established at once, so the more recent additions admittedly get a bit more arbitrary, but you can see clearly that the watersheds of Wolostog and Miramichi in the layout of the counties. Thanks, John. John, that is fantastic information, and actually that's that that I very think, useful. Like, Thank you. It's also kind of eloquent in that there's this sort of continuity with like the importance of the waterways between you know the pre-european and post-european um world prior to vehicles yeah no that's very neat that's um and that does explain that pattern so thanks very much john is is john someone we know ken or is, is john a... uh no i don't think so actually okay well um, thanks very much john and it's nice to meet you yeah thank you john and thank you for the the comment on twitter as well the uh and John's Twitter handle is at Ravelstein, which is R-A-V-E-L-S-T-E-E-N. And I checked with him on Twitter and was delighted to discover it's a reference to the underrated Saul Bell novel, Ravelstein, which is, uh, have you read that, Ken? I don't even know who the author is. Yeah, it's one of the great, it's one of the, the, the great uh, weird uh, novels about being an academic. You might actually sort of like it now that the summer's rolled around and you oh, got a little time. It's, that might uh, be a little fun. Yeah, yeah. It's right up there with Lucky Jim and uh, a place to come to. Also, it's a also it's a good ones. Mostly about, um, I mean, the theme is professors with serious problems in their lives, uh, whether that be <laughs> substances or diseases or diseases and substances. Um, but uh, but they're but they're all three of them very good. So thanks very much, John. Um, and I think we also had on Instagram. We wanted to thank Ruby History Hound who uh for the for reaching out to us on instagram uh ruby history hound is uh, a dog that um promotes various kinds of history podcasts history education and uh has uh, mentioned the podcast and we really appreciate it so thanks very much uh ruby so the the socials are on fire this week uh f f i y a they absolutely are and and i apologize to all the listeners who may have noticed that i don't uh necessarily keep up very well on the socials and uh so it's not that i haven't we, we do really enjoy uh ken and i are just not very good at social media um which is why this is a podcast and not a live tweet uh governor DeSantis style from from the imploding land of twitter yeah tw and, twitter and, square or twitter corner or something and those of you who have emailed the podcast have probably realized that I did a really good job of responding to you on the air and not a very good job of actually <laughs> responding to your actual emails. So I will I will try to be better about that as well. But um, 
Uh, for anybody who emails, uh, we love to uh, share the uh, the sticker wealth with everyone. And so um, if you're willing to, when you send your email, uh, we're happy to mail you uh, through some snail mail, uh, some uh, some NB ArcPod stickers uh, and and whatever swag we have in the future um uh, as it as it advances so that's right we we are looking to get more more swag and you know and and and, and more sponsors in fact and, you know actually so can i um this uh this past weekend i watched the uh the uh the movie pirate radio have, have you seen this movie it's with uh philip seymour hoffman and oh, yeah. uh, bill yeah. nye and it, yeah. it's got terrible reviews um you know but i'm not really a, a cinephile I, I mean i like sin as much as the next guy but i just don't know that much about movies and um, and I saw that and I thought to myself, you know what we actually need is a boat. We should we we need we need the you know, this boat where we could where we could broadcast. You know, need to be a boat with reasonably good Wi-Fi. Do you know what we could do? We should What's rent that? one of those houseboats that goes up the Wallastog, uh that launches from Mattaquack. Oh yeah, um, and goes up goes up to like Woodstock. Uh, the houseboats. I bet we could set up a studio in there and have like a you know NB Arcpod barbecue. That's a great um, idea. Yeah, yeah. Barbecue on the on the river. Yeah. Life for me is a riverboat fantasy, as they say. Exactly. So, exactly. Uh, that sounds great. Um, and if you're you're listening to that music, um, you you probably realize that uh, we have our first Hakuna Arata for the first uh, first time in the last few episodes. Oh, that's um, right. And uh, and so um, uh, the first one is that we uh, uh, in in the course of editing the episode last week, I I received a text message from a colleague of ours that said I got two out of three of the swears, <laughs> all of which were uttered <laughs> and, uh, by me apparently. But they uh, so uh, we apologize. Um, so apologize for that. Um, yeah, we Ken, Ken it... we're, we're too good to work blue, I think. So so we'll try to keep this clean for the <laughs> for the listener. And I and I apologize for that. Yeah, the, we you know in the future didn't... any any expletives will be directed at specific individuals. Um, yeah. and, uh, and worth listening to. Yeah. And, uh, and also, uh, I also want to apologize for, um, audio engineering is actually quite difficult. Um, and what we learned last week is that, uh, um, and this is a lesson to all of you would be podcasters, um, and anybody who's looking to plug a microphone into their, uh, computer and, uh, you know, take a zoom call or do an interview or something like that. Now, Ken, I just said um, we weren't going to work blue, so don't make this, don't make this weird. Okay. <laughs> uh, Word of advice, dongles will produce an electron electronic noise that results in a hum that you can't get rid of. Um, and uh, and also uh, when you're when you're starting out in podcasting, uh, listen to your friend who speaks into a microphone more frequently that the uh, microphone is actually supposed to be pointed straight up. So if you notice that my audio is a little bit better this week, and I actually hope it is, um, it is because I am set up properly now um, and I am direct wired into my computer. Uh, and no dongle. And so the uh, the cheapo Amazon dongle is great for adding peripherals to a computer that came with three USB-C ports and nothing else. Uh, but uh, but uh, you want to plug your microphone straight into that computer to avoid um, what sounds like a lawnmower going on in the background. There was a lawnmower last week as well, <laughs> but uh, there was also a lawnmower noise that was uh, being produced from the microphone. The listener also can't see that uh, that Ken is actually broadcasting from a, basically a tent fort um, this time. He's there. There are quilts strung all over his. Uh, it's baffling. It's called office. baffling in the biz. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Room treatments. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
so uh we we should we should get to this ken because the 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 in fact when when we get to the even halfway point of this show it's possible that we won't be looking at a, a half-finished ordinary bottle of Covassier, but it's going to be like a half-finished Jeroboam of Covassier, because this is a topic you and I are both interested in. I mean, we've even discussed the the possibility that we may have to break this into two if, you know, because I'm, I'm going hiking tomorrow, and I assume you've got something to do um, tomorrow that precludes us staying, uh, doing that 24-hour kind of filibuster-style podcast. Exactly. So, the listener who knows us now knows that this this topic would be, of course, the late woodland, late maritime woodland period, which is about uh, thirteen thousand years ago, right up to European contact. Um, and so uh, Ken and I both work on this period, which is uh, why we're particularly excited to talk to you about it. Um, and one of the reasons that this period, I think, has maybe kind of an outsized place in the imagination at least for the kind of Northeast audience, is that, you know, when people think about pilgrims or something like this, this is the, the, the basically the, the cultures that, that Europeans encountered that were, you know, encountered is probably too delicate a word for that, but that these interactions were between basically late maritime woodland people or late woodland people in New England and with Europeans. So, that means that all this stuff we think about, you know, villages and particularly in southern New England, corn, these are all going on at this at this period. And so, Ken, does that kind of fit with your understanding of of this period just kind of in people's imaginations? Yeah, yeah. And if we think about it sort of in a broader kind of global context, this is, um, you know, what is anthropologically kind of been considered this forger to farmer transition that we've kind of, we've been hinting at for you know several episodes now um but but this is very much the um uh, the north american equivalent of this neolithic revolution and 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 in some parts of north america so when we're talking about the late woodland here um late woodland throughout most of eastern north america is kind of uh, of various different things but in sort of the heartland you know we were talking about adina and hopewell the last couple episodes um and what characterizes the late woodland um in other parts of of north america and parts of the northeast is um the mississippian age um and sort of uh, these these large city states so you probably are familiar with cahokia um which was sort of first occupied probably about uh, 1200 years ago um, and and persisted kind of at its peak between about a thousand and and like 800 or 700 years ago and and so what we're going to be talking about today is not a you know the largest pre-columbian city um, but it is the maritimes and new brunswick's um, response to what is going on sort of uh, in, in a more kind of global event in some ways right yeah and so i mean we're essentially talking about the medieval period, you know, right? So the the listener who's kind of interested in in European history might think about it in that way, um, yeah. which is interesting too because there's an important climate thing that happens. So the if we if we fast forward, one of the things that happened when Europeans arrived in North America, you know, especially Champlain, is they didn't have a very good understanding about how like climate weather work and climate and weather worked and so we're we're very surprised you know champlain shows up and gets screwed up right gets gets snowed in <laughs> half of his men die of scurvy and but you know part of that is because uh it leading up to that had been the medieval warm period 
and then he arrived during the Little Ice Age, right? But so that means that during this this period that we're going to talk about today is actually mostly pretty warm. It's particularly warm compared to the period that'll follow it. And so, you know, right at the beginning of the late woodlands, it's actually pretty chilly. It's kind of a, a cold snap. Um, but then we get into this medieval warm period. But there's there's kind of an interesting thing that happens, right? That I think many of us think about, you know, warm weather is great, you know, ecologically. I mean, I, I don't feel like it's great right now as I as I sit in uh in in the basque of a too small and, uh, air conditioner and and new brunswick and nova scotia are burning after you know last episode alberta was burning that's right yeah uh new hampshire's not burning it's just cooking um yeah which is uh like so many tendies here in the here in manchester um but what what happens is though you get this reduction in temperature differences on the coast seasonally so basically you know but between the seasons less variability so you actually that results for complicated scientific reasons that I don't really understand in less vertical mixing. So you're, the water is mixing less. And so as a result in the Gulf of Maine, there's actually less uh, productivity than there had been biologically before. Nonetheless, we, we think that there's still like pretty incredible biological productivity in this area, you know, so we'll talk about this too. I'm, I guess I'm sort of, I'm kind of cheating into this that we're going to talk a little bit about why they didn't grow maize here even though yep. it seems like they probably could have. And the, um, and the listener will remember too, that that influx of cold water that created that vertical mixing that, that I guess it wasn't so much the cold water. It was this mixing of, of, you know, the, the frequently changing tidal amplitude in the Bay of Fundy um, and all of these sort of knock-on effects um, was what created sort of this like perfect environment for people to kind of um, adapt to the coastal environments that we talked about basically during the early and, in, and especially in the middle woodland, basically. Right. And, and yeah, that's yeah. shifting that, that, that those conditions are changing basically. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so we could maybe just, you know, whatever we, we sort of started to talk about it. We talked about maze. I guess we just talk about Kevin Leonard's paper um, about the late woodland, which is, well, so I'm going to set this up a little bit. So the, I don't know if the listener knows this, but the, uh, the, <laughs> I went to graduate school in Connecticut uh, and when I showed up in Connecticut, I thought, yeah, oh my goodness, everyone clearly knows what was going on in the woodland period in Connecticut. And I thought that was going to be really fascinating to work somewhere where everybody knew what the woodland was like, because I was interested in the woodland in, you know, Maine and New Brunswick and Nova Scotia. I was like, oh, this is going to be a great comparison. And I showed up and it like really quickly became apparent to me that I had just not really read the literature here. And so one of the, the things that first struck me, my supervisor was Kevin McBride and Kevin McBride was kind of on record as saying that maybe maize had been a non-event that was I think a direct quote in basically the culture history of the lower Connecticut River Valley and the argument for that was basically that um despite this this you know all of a sudden there's maize it wasn't like anyone had actually found villages right like which is supposed to be there yeah. And then on top of that, they hadn't actually found that many, uh, that much direct evidence for maize. And there hadn't been really any particular evidence that people had stopped acting more or less like hunter gatherers who had just kind of plugged some maize into their seasonal round. And so, and, and so, and so I think we should give folks some context too about why maize is important. And, and the reason that we think, you know, like, uh, the reason that the prevailing theories were that 
um, Maze was this sort of causal um, uh, element when it came to settled horticultural village life is that it's a, you know, a high producing plant. Um, and you had some evidence in the Great Lakes region, for example, that um, the groups that became sort of the Iroquoian uh, groups in, and, you know, Haudenosaunee. But uh, we're thinking about the uh, Iroquoians um, and village life there. And we're thinking about the effect that corn had, for example, in the Southwest and other places where maize was domesticated and became an integral part of um, the diet and actually became this sort of like bumper crop that people were subsisting off of. And, and that there was some relationship between growing corn and moving into villages uh, and that there was some relationship between those two things. Whereas in even, even in Southern New England, while you had groups growing corn, you're not seeing these villages like you're seeing in the Great Lakes. You're not seeing palisade walls around villages, for example, right? Um, you're not seeing as many uh, fewer numbers of longhouses and and these places that you uh, sort of domestic spaces and and spaces within sites that you would expect to be sort of this classic idea of what a village is. And so, you know, a number of houses and, you know, administrative buildings, public spaces, that sort of thing with, you know, potentially with uh, uh, with defensive structures around them, because as you are moving into village life, um, you are moving into situations where um, I don't know if we're going to get into it today, where we're talking talk about territoriality, and so you know this is mine and that is yours, and I'm going to defend this, and that and that's um, we we're not seeing that kind of same situation, and in, in, even in southern New England, and and part of that is just the what, the way we think about this, the nature of horticulture is that I mean if you're if you're growing plants that changes aspects of how you live, right? Because first of all, corn's really storable. And so that makes a big difference because if you're storing um, this kind of domesticate uh, for later use, that matters. It also means if, you want to keep yeah, track of food that. through the year, basically. Yeah, exactly. And you want to keep track of that crop. You've got to sort of time it. There are changes that happen when, when plants uh, become domesticates, which basically you want to start selecting for them to become available at the same time. Um, and all the kind of things that make this seem like a kind of important package. But if you sort of think about it, I mean, there's there's no particular reason that you couldn't kind of plug corn into the seasonal round in kind of a casual way. You know, whenever I think about this, I'm actually reminded about working CRM once in Maryland and working CRM in a cornfield. And if you're, which is actually a really strange experience. Uh, have you Have you done this before, Ken? Yeah, in Southern Ontario. Oh, yeah. And, and so, you know, it's totally bizarre because if you're working alone, you don't see anybody because you're just standing in the corn with a machete, also, like slicing. It's also much hotter. It is much hotter. Yeah. Yeah. So it always reminds me of of working in uh, working CRM in, in Maryland uh, in these cornfields where uh and so we're working and, and you end up destroying as you're cutting these swaths of corn for your transects. You destroy a lot of corn. And so the farmer gets crop damage bees. I don't really know how they work. And so, you know, we're out wrecking this guy's cornfield and uh, he comes out and uh, the crew chief assures him, you know, not to worry that we're, we're, we're keeping it to the minimum amount of, of crop that we can damage. And he says, no, actually, I'm getting good crop damage fees. So cut down whatever you want. And also, really, it's just some old stuff I had in the garage I threw out here. I'm surprised it came up, but I knew you guys were coming. Uh, and so, but this idea, right, that you could kind of just, and I sort of thought to myself, oh, you know, later, that's, yeah, that's kind of funny. That's sort of like, uh, you could imagine a situation where it's like, 
oh, we're kind of casually domesticating corn, you know, we're not relying on it. But if it's there when we get back, that's great. It's just like plugging more calories into the environment that we live in. So yeah. that was kind and of cool. And, and your neighbors might be growing corn. And so if you want it, you might be able to trade for it. Yeah, well, that too, which is really interesting. Um, the uh, Ken and I, the listener can't see this, but we're actually both clutching our desks as we see these like rabbit holes that we could go down and emerge from, <laughs> you know, sometime next Tuesday and uh, and not actually get this post, get this podcast to you. Um, we haven't even made it to the Maritimes yet. Oh, my God. I know. Yeah, but we're, we're getting there. We're getting there. Um, Corn heat units. All right. Yeah. So. So we're we're gonna talk about Kevin Leonard's paper then. Yeah. Cool. So why don't why don't you go for it? Uh, we'll put so this in the Kevin, show notes. Yeah. So Kevin Leonard wrote a paper in I believe it was 1995, uh, woodland or ceramic period uh, theoretical problem. Was that what it was? Um, uh, he's yeah. kind of talking about um, some of the taxonomic baggage in the region more generally, but he gets into an interesting article talking about how um, sort of this classic notion of what woodland is, um, and so. Uh, uh, you know, we, we've got sort of the elaboration of burial ceremonialism. You've got people basically growing domesticates. You've got um, intensification, settled village life, and all this other stuff. And so one of the things um, that has been argued is that uh, maritime woodland, uh, do we really have a woodland period uh, in, in the maritimes, right? And so one of the things that would indicate that is maybe that there are domesticates here. And so, for example, corn. Um, we also know from um, ethno-historic documentation that um, at least the Wolostogwig were growing corn in the summers in the 17th century. Um, there's a fairly well-documented at Meductic, for example, there were cornfields um, at, a, at you know, a village there. Um, but what we don't have is really compelling evidence of um, corn growing in uh, the pre-contact period. And what Kevin did, and I believe this was in the context of his dissertation, wasn't it? Um, some of the stuff he was working yeah, on. Yeah, I think the paper derives from his dissertation. I'm not 100% sure, but I but I think it does. Yeah, and so basically there's this argument that you need to have a certain temperature, uh, number of growing days, and uh, uh, there's a particular temperature, isn't it? That has to be, so it's- um, it's, a, it's a certain number of warm days, right? Yeah, so basically um, uh, you need to have a certain number of days where you have- uh, warm enough days basically to grow corn and to make it viable. Um, and he sort of did uh, looked at the growing seasons for the entire Maritimes. There's this really excellent figure in there. Um, and they're called corn heat units, basically to sort of quantify, you know, was there enough, were there enough growing days in these areas to the calculation? I don't know how he gets the corn heat units. I forgot to write down what the actual calculation was there um we'll throw in the show notes anyway and the listener can you know ken and i don't really do the math live we try to we yeah try to so, pass so it off to other people essentially you need about 2300 corn heat units to grow corn um and what he discovered was that there are actually several areas in the maritimes where this was viable um and that there's actually an area in particular in the grand lakes region where you have 2500 corn heat units or more and so um, and a part of PEI as well in around St. Peter's Bay, so probably close to like present day Char uh, Charlottetown. Um, there are a couple of places in the Maritimes essentially where um, you have uh, the, you had the climatic conditions in the pre-contact period that would support growing maize um, as, a, as a staple crop, basically. Um, and not just in this ad hoc way, but that you had 
similar conditions like what you would see in southern New England um, and in around the Great Lakes region that would have allowed people to grow corn. And so the decision, the 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 absence of it is not necessarily an inability to grow corn in this region. Which is really interesting, right? Because we we often, you know, I think there's this sort of mis- uh, <laughs> We're, we're going to do that thing here, listener, where we 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 say, OK, we're narrowing it down. But now let's talk a little bit more about hunter gatherer theory. Um, but <laughs> but there's this idea, right, that, you know, I think people in their imagination sometimes think, oh, you know, it must be really rough to be a hunter gatherer. You're always like, you know, out collecting food. You know, you're always hunting. Um, and there's been a lot of critiques of this paper. But, you know, Sons is original affluent society. Right. You kind of points out what I think most people still accept, which is that being a hunter gatherer is actually a pretty good gig um compared to some of the alternatives especially when the alternative is kind of a slavish devotion to horticulture right yeah um they're also and, and bad potentially having to happen. move quite and potentially having to move quite frequently right you know like this is uh, one of the things that you see in the in the late woodland villages in the in the great lakes region is that right. the villages move in part because they've depleted soil and they've run out of trees and you know so every generation every 20 to 35 years these villages are moving around um because you essentially run out of kind of the viability of the area right totally yeah doing an ad hoc thing it's it's a little like a hunter gatherer might um you know you're you're encouraging sort of digging up um, you know, particular places and, and, you know, promoting like tubers and things like that. Cause, cause Kevin's other argument is about, um, uh, Apios Americana, which is a, a tuber, right? Yeah. It's a groundnut. I mean, it's sort of like, um, so the, the early Jesuit explorers in New Brunswick called it, uh, rosaries because it's got these sort of, it's like a Jerusalem artichoke, but with like these kind of bulbous parts. So it looks like the beads on a rosary. Yeah. Um, and sorry, go on though. Yeah. And and it and that's another thing that may you know there was probably not sort of a, uh, a formalized horticulture, um, but there's sort of this um, what's that Smith paper the uh, low level food producing oh, uh, uh, concept, isn't it isn't it low level food producers isn't that the uh, that I, that rings a bell and that uh, Smith who you worked with at Toronto, no 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 it's no it's it's a different Smith, oh it is yeah yeah Which Dave Smith. Is it? uh just a sec uh dave smith and gary crawford are sort of famously did a bunch of work on dating of whom are retired professors from university of toronto uh did a lot of kind of interesting work on early dates uh, of may's horticulture in southern ontario and the great lakes region that's why Um, i thought it was dave smith's paper i think i just somehow didn't occur to me that it wasn't his so his name may also be david smith but it's not the same guy yeah, that would have confused um, me. You could see how this could confuse me. Uh, hold on. The uh, the listener gets to see the sausage being made here. Yeah. Here so why don't sausage. you riff on on Apios Americana for a moment? Sure. So so do these groundnuts, and they um they respond really well to basically being kind of gardened, right? So you could um the 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 kind of uh, plant just that if you interact with it, if you dig it up, if you cut into pieces. Um, it comes back even stronger than before. So you could kind of maintain these sort of plots and really plug more um, basically calories into your food system, right? There's the context from which Kevin recovered these was pretty unique. It was at um, a place called Skull Island up near Shediac. Uh, it was a collaborative archaeology project that 
Kevin got involved in that uh, allowed him to work uh, at a burial site. And so these groundnuts were recovered actually in the in in I believe or at least adjacent to the burial context. They were kind of uniquely preserved because one thing that is true in um, Man the Maritimes, as Mike Deal has basically pointed out, is that archaeobotany or paleoethnobotany, which is the study of food remains in the past, is still really um, uh, at its kind of early stages in this region. Yeah. And even if it wasn't, uh, parenchyma tissue preserves really terribly. And so we get virtually no preservation in ordinary conditions of parenchyma. Um, under some situations, we'll get preservation of macrobotanicals. As far as I know, Ken, no one's really doing macrobotanical work, you know, uh, starch grains and phytoliths in any major way in the maritime provinces. I don't know. I'm, I'm not sure if anybody has. I mean, there's a lot of groundstone tools here that you think would have probably some kind of functional advantages, you know, like a, a kind of monos and and uh and other grinding implements that you would expect and we know that gr uh, groups were uh like, like wastigwig in particular were eating like butternut and stuff like that mm -hmm. you would be processing with these heavy groundstone implements but um uh yeah no it's it's kind of the, so it's funny because i think we're going to come back to um uh, some of the shortcomings in the region are kind of at a methodological scale um and so we'll talk about like screen aperture uh uh later in the episode here stay we'll be tuned about, for more discussion <laughs> stay, about stay screen tuned. Aperture. <laughs> um but um but you know in the case of like flotation you know uh it's not a standardized thing to be floating all feature samples from archaeological contexts here um and even if you do float it um you know i floated samples from a feature i i know nothing about macro botanics i collected them what i you know were probably seed remains but I, I had no idea what they were. And it's a really specialized, uh, you know, it's a specialty within archaeology, right? Like there's a woman that I, I did when I was at U of T um, um, that uh, who specializes in um, uh, sampling Jomon, uh, does starch residues on Jomon stuff and, and from oh, cool. Southern Ontario. Um, um, and uh, yeah, so so uh, Bruce Smith, Bruce D. Smith, low level. Oh, the production. Smithsonian guy. The Smithsonian guy, yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. So, I, I know about him, but I just yeah. didn't. Uh, yeah, okay, cool. Yeah, so so it's a different Smith. Two thousand one is the article. Low level food production is the title. Yeah, we'll throw it in the show notes. But basically, the argument is that there's a space between um, uh, uh, hunting and gather, hunting, fishing, and gathering groups and those that are settled horticulturalists. Um, and, you know, the argument is that in some cases, these groups were probably low level food producers. And so, um, you know, to a certain degree, you might look at like West Coast groups doing um, shellfish mariculture, for example, as kind of falling into uh, into this. And I, and I seem to remember too, um, it's been a while since I read this article. Um, there's There's a little bit of kind of like backlash to it in the sense that some people kind of thought it was a little bit too kind of drawing a little bit too much on kind of the classic Benfordian model of like, you know, it's us or them kind of thing. Um, uh, uh, but uh, but yeah, it's uh, an interesting read, kind of gives you a sense of like, you know, there's this, if I remember correctly, I'm I'm, I'm zipping through the article right now for the listener. Uh, uh, That's okay. You know. The listener also can't see the look on my face, which is realizing that I just submitted some revisions to a paper and clearly should have cited this. So, uh, so <laughs> no, so, <way>. yeah. <laughs> I'm going to I'm going to share my screen with Gabe here. There's this really fantastic um uh figure in the paper uh that kind of yeah, shows this, this is like a classic one. 
yeah, um, this sort of scale between where you'd expect um, all of these hunter gatherers to fall in different places and, you know, has like, uh, 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 you know, AD 1000 Eastern North America, Hopewell groups, uh, Northwest Coast groups. Um, and there's this mountain range in the middle that's, uh, uh, you know, kind of talks about with or without domesticates. Anyway, it's a, it's a, yeah. it's a fascinating read um, and uh, gives you a sense that, you know, there's, there's a fairly long and very large population of, of uh, groups that were um, sort of hunter gatherer plus, I guess um, <laughs> in some way. Um, uh, and we're not, not settled horticulturalists by any means so yeah um no i think that makes sense and just to actually return to your i mean and this is really what we were kind of hinting at i guess when we were talking about southern new england is this idea that you could have maize and you know maize is definitely really important after european contact but we're still a little confused about the degree to which it was important um before european contact and actually just on the subject of macrobotanicals um there's a recent paper out by uh krista dotzel um we'll put in the show notes but uh she's at uh university of connecticut and did basically phytolith studies which and and so you know oh boy i can't i'm about to explain phytoliths you know uh on on air here but they uh, but basically there there's kind of botanicals that are um uh very very small so you have to look at them under a microscope and what what you can imagine is that if you if you have a plant cell, I can hear the Hakuna errata coming already. But if you have a plant cell, basically sometimes it fills up with silica and it makes a negative of those cells. And those cells, you know, are are diagnostic if you look at them under under magnification. There's a way to recover those. the The guys that did this at UConn or Chris that did this at UConn too, they always they always wear these gigantic gloves because they have to like cook these soil samples in acid to get the phytolis out. So I've got these like dragon hide gloves, you know, up to their armpits and, you know, special glasses and these fume hoods and stuff. Yeah, um, I've, I've got a great picture from Belize when we were doing starch sampling uh, at the field lab there. And it's like a the the guy that was doing the, the field director had like this gas mask thing on. And, you know, we're all like standing back. Well, yeah, he dunks these uh, mono and matates in, in this like, you know, rubber made tub of some kind of chemical slurry. Yeah, uh, no, it's great. It's uh, yeah. you know, and, and just can... so the and to give a shout out, um, uh, Emma Yaswi is uh, Dr. Emma Yaswi is was the uh, author of a um, or she she finished her dissertation. She was looking at, I think, actually stuff from comparing stuff from Jomon and Southern Ontario. I know she's done a bunch of work in Southern Ontario. Maybe oh, that's cool. That but she has a, re a paper that came out last fall, processing it all starch residues on Jomon period groundstone from Southern Hokkaido, Japan. Um, and we'll put that in the show notes for you to read, uh, just to get a sense of like, uh, there's, she covers methodology and, and, uh, Jomon is a very interesting period in, in, uh, Japan. Uh, and it's kind of this, like, basically it's, it's hunter gatherers that become settled horticulturalists. It's sort of their, if I, if I'm remembering correctly, that may also be a, uh, uh, Hakuna Arata, but I seem to remember Jomon is sort of the Neolithic of the, of, of Japan, isn't it? Yeah, so it's also the oldest ceramics in Japan or the oldest ceramics anywhere, is it? Is that right? Could be, could be, yeah. Um, uh, I'm not this sure is just either. about groundstone here. Yeah, well, but, we may uh, be filling up the uh, the protohistoric episode with uh, with errata, so <laughs> I guess we apologize in advance. Um, yeah, but we uh, haven't you know, strayed we haven't strayed off the continent since we uh, we screwed up the uh, 
the, the the fluted points thing <laughs> the uh yeah this is, this is the great thing with this program is is we could be wrong on multiple continents in one episode you know so <laughs> they um maybe some but, of those uh listers in kim kachka will uh will uh write in this week yeah i hope so yeah the uh <laughs> I, I still think those are those are vpns but um who knows um <laughs> and so uh we- before we get to uh, so so should we talk about villages because like uh, uh you know yeah let we're me not finish finding up. the vill- okay you finish up maze sorry yeah yeah which is just this interesting study which is basically that so you get these phytoliths and Krista found that the phytoliths occur earlier than the macrobotanicals at these sites so the phytoliths are older than two thousand years and the macrobotanicals are basically late woodland and so. This is sort of interesting because it suggests that people are involved with maize at these different periods, but their interactions with it are changing. It pro- might have something to do with just these terrible preservation conditions you often get. So um, are they you know, boiling the maize or are they storing it, drying it, and then cooking it? So which creates very different preservation processes and might affect whether or not you get phytoliths versus whether or not you... Uh, can actually get preserved uh, kernels, macrobotanical remains. Um, so as Ken pointed out, we should finish talking about villages. Uh, so are we going to talk about this again, first? Again, villages? we have not yet made it into the Maritimes. Um, <laughs> and uh, and I think I think when we're talking about villages, I think um, a really excellent paper from uh, Levely, um, or, or I guess in... Is it Levely? Is that how he pronounces yeah, it? Yeah, Al- Alan Levely. Yeah, Alan Levely. Okay. Um, I hope that's how he pronounces it. It's what I've always called him. So yeah, uh, for for the New Brunswick listener, it'd be Levelet. It's a it's a very French, uh, but it'd be like LeBlanc in the states kind of deal, right? Was I have no idea. I've that, I, Yeah, yeah. In Maine, it would just be Levelet. <laughs> uh, and. What they propose in that paper uh, is that part of the reason that we're not seeing villages is that uh, the way that we've conceptualized villages is actually maybe incorrect, and that um, villages as a uh, how how we would sort of how you picture them in your mind and how I sort of talked about them as um, what you might expect uh, archaeologically um, may have been viewed differently um, uh, by groups in the past, in particular uh, Algonquian groups in New England and, and into the Maritimes, and that. Um, a village may not be comprised of sort of this closed space um, and instead can be conceptualized better as a landscape. And so um, I believe that the, uh, what was the, what was the term he used? It was a disaggregated. Dis- yeah. Dispersed. Dispersed, I think. dispersed yeah. village. And so this dispersed village model um, is basically um, what you'll see are a group of um, uh, sort of uh, uh, contemporary um, Guival occupations um uh various uh, various sizes and probably breaking down into task specifics and so what we're talking about here is we're breaking down again getting kind of into the hunter gatherer theory weeds but what you're seeing are probably um these are weeds we're, these are domesticates <laughs> yeah, that's right these are, yeah they used to be weeds now they're <laughs> stay tuned um, for kinopods and other weenie plants next <laughs> next episode the, uh, uh, sunflower and stuff like that yeah yeah um and uh, safer consumption at school. Actually, sunflower butter is pretty good. It's a. It's, it's not a bad very, at all. No, it's an excellent peanut butter substitute. It's for no those cashew of you butter. School aged children. Well, cashew butter is no good for school because it's a it's a nut butter. 
Oh, wait, so just, just because one... That's not very Alberta. I thought the UCP won last night. They did, uh, but uh, freedom doesn't ex- uh, does not extend to those with um, nut allergies. <laughs> Fascinating. Yeah. Um, and so this notion of dispersed villages would basically be what you're seeing are probably smaller base camps um, and a number of task-specific sites, so these logistical foray sites, and they're distributed across the landscape. And so instead of seeing one sort of village with all of these different features, big houses and that sort of thing, you're getting bigger houses, as you and colleagues have written about. I'll get you to kind of riff on that in a moment. But um, you're seeing bigger houses, but you're seeing them spaced out in different ways. And you're seeing this in parts of New England. And then Catherine Patton and colleagues have done some interesting work. And they see that in the later part of the late woodland in the Maritimes as well. Um, And you and Matt kind of propose that this is sort of the notion that what you guys are seeing in Port Jolly, if I'm not correct, correct? No, that that is correct. The uh, and and Matt and I are are working on this, right? We were working on this uh, until last night, I should probably go back and plug that Bruce Smith article in. Um, But (laughs) (laughs) but um, yeah, so the the, I think one of the the kind of things the listener might want to sort of get their their head around a little bit just with this is that you can kind of think about if we think about a village, there are really kinds of two different things we're saying, right? One is that we're thinking about we might be thinking about a particular kind of space, right? We're thinking about um, a fairly constrained area with a bunch of houses that are occupied at about the same time. I think usually with the village, we're implying that they're occupied you know, year round or pretty close, right? Yep. And that all the activities to keep your community going take place in that village, right? So that's kind of one way to think about it. But another thing that we think we think about when there's a village is that we tend to think about it as kind of a, almost a level of political organization, right? That that it's it's actually about the community. It's about the people who live in that village. And so in that conception, you could have the village be sort of strewn around across a bigger landscape than a sort of constrained one. And it could account for certain amounts of mobility. So, you know, in like classic anthropological theory that would shift more from sort of what we think about as a band, which is a group of hunter-gatherers, towards like something like a tribe or even a chiefdom, where we've got basically a little bit more um, formal leadership, bigger group size, and then like the classic, you know, diagram would be, you know, reliance on stored comestibles right so yeah yeah. and in a chiefdom you have essentially a a centralized political authority um and and probably a number of smaller kind of polities or or smaller political groups that 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 sort of chiefdom that chief is is sort of directing and and uh there's some speculation that like among Mi'kmaq for example in the historic period um they were sort of their political organization was probably more akin to a chiefdom because of the way that the different um, uh, Mi'kmaq districts were broken up in that way. Yeah, that's right. So Virginia Miller did work on that in her 83 chapter on, you know, complexity. And so, and and that actually fits where you get um, like member two uh, in Nova Scotia as a sort of important chief. Um, You get Bathabez in Castine in Maine. Um, so you get these just degrees of sort of complicated or more complex, I guess, political organization. And we'll actually we'll we'll foreshadow here a little bit that we're gonna talk about the Goddard site here shortly, which may be an archaeological indication of that kind of thing in the late woodland. Um and so Ken, I've sort of done this thing where now I'm talking about the late woodland and I'm just spiraling out of control here. I feel like I've got the bicycle going downhill. Yeah, you um, even but- you even threw in complexity there, Gabe. 
Yeah, I know. Yeah, you can, can the listener tell that I've been up late reviewing uh, or sorry, editing this paper. Um, but so we were talking about New England, though, right? This what basically what Levelle uh, and colleagues out of the Public Archaeology Lab proposed was that maybe what you've got is village-like social interactions, but like Ken said, using a bigger landscape. And yep. you know that's not that that seems to me to be reasonable. And one of the things that Catherine and and Sue and Jesse have argued is that there's no particular reason that that kind of community couldn't exist in here on the Maritime Peninsula, and, especially and, if we think about Northwest Coast analogs where hunter gatherers organized in this way. Sorry, I interrupted you. Yeah, and and people are moving around in boats. That's the other thing is yeah. like you know in in coastal settings in particular, if you're occupying like a cove like Port Jolly or or um, uh, what's the bay that Sam Moore's Pond is on? I can't remember the name of it. Oh, I can't either. But it's uh, down in down in uh, co- like sort of the uh, mainland co- quadi region. But yeah, you know, I think it's called be... BGDS fifteen Bay, isn't it? So... <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, but uh, but you're moving around in probably birch bark canoes um, and or or other uh, watercraft and you know the they they have this really uh, uh, Sue and and Catherine and them have this really great figure where they're kind of showing how like people can kind of see each other like Quentin Mackey did something similar mm-hmm. on the West Coast where he's talking about how sort of the inter um, uh, what is it intervisibility of all of these sites and so you can probably although you're not all sort of in this cohesive sort of contained space um you you can probably see each other moving around and you can also probably picture like you're you're occupying a cove there's all these sort of fires you know like little campsites around a cove in a space where it feels communal right you can see these things and you see them in like you know like in california among the chumash and the in the you know in the sort of late pre-contact in california all of these shellman sites that are like sort of dotting the landscape that you can see them the whole way down um you can kind of picture something like that going on with this sort of dispersed village concept that that uh um um you know everybody can you're still taking part it's uh you, you have a centralized probably political authority to a certain degree you're all kind of working together on something but you are you're not as separated as you might envision it being when you occupy a landscape like that and this is important in this region because what we're describing is a a, a way in which we don't think of hunter-gatherers behaving. There's this great David Sanger line, um, Algonquians generally behave as hunter-gatherers should, which I just think is this great, <laughs> this great line. So, you know, Algonquians, the language speakers that include the Wabanaki. You know, this kind of idea that we've got basically one kind of hunter-gatherer, and that is small group size, highly mobile, highly residentially mobile, so moving around the whole community. and uh, And probably you know their social complexity amounts to we meet up in the summer to trade stones and and other goods kind of thing yeah totally no i remember this this i took this great course on his undergrad with jim atchison called political anthropology which is about like political organization you know around the world basically among different groups and we learned about the the kung san and uh and they talked about basically you you really leaned into that there the the kung san I know, yeah, do you like that? Because I can't <laughs> say the exclamation point sound, so I just I just get close to the mic. Um, and uh, and uh, anyway, so the the Kungsan have this headman, right? And this this you know you sort of think, oh, headman, that sounds kind of nice. It's like you know, but it's basically like the only thing he gets is he gets to set up his tent first, 
and um, he gets to give permission to access the Velcos, which is this this important plant that also you know involves water, because uh, they're in the the desert. And um, and but then it's like, well, that seems great. You've you've got control of this food and water source, and it's like, well, yeah, but he's obligated to say yes. <laughs> you know, you have to ask, but he can't say no. You know, so that that that's kind of your like how Hunter Gatherer is supposed to behave, and so. What that's going to lead into is going to be, I think, our discussion about Binford. But I feel like, Ken, we're obligated. I don't really want to end with Norse. So I feel like what we're obligated to do is to just eliminate Norse right now. We're just going to we're going to we're going to take five minutes and um, and we're going to and, and we're going to set fire to this boat and give it a give it a Viking funeral. Yep. Um, but first, it's it is a thousand degrees in my home studio and I desperately need another sparkling water. So we're back. Um, we've been refreshed. Uh, Gabe looks like he has dabbed his brow. Um, yeah. And we both have cool beverages. Um, we're refilled. And we still haven't made it into the Maritimes. But we're going to jump uh, a little bit further north of the Maritimes. We're going to leap Wait. over the Maritimes. Wait, we're not going to discuss the fall of the Roman Empire? Uh, not today. Not oh, today. no, that's next fortnight. That's next fortnight. When we set the yeah. ground night, the groundwork for the... Collision of cultures. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, we got to, we, for, for European contact, we really need to not just give the European context, but we need to give the background in Europe to the context in Europe to send them across. The okay. Ocean. But right now we're going to talk more about Japan. Uh, no, no wrong coast. Mm. Uh, gross, the, gross yeah. water paleo Inuit. <laughs> well, they might've, they might've met up with them. Getting closer, uh, getting closer. Yeah. We're getting closer. Uh, a uh, couple you know, a couple of the um, one of the Avengers comes from uh, from these places. You know that. Uh, oh, we're going to legend. space. <laughs> we're doing space. <laughs> yeah, Mjolnir um, is uh, ring ringing his hammer down upon. But no, we're we're talking about the Norse. Um, and right. and I pulled out the archaeology <laughs> of the Atlantic Northeast Uh-oh. because there's this fantastic line that um, much like. Uh, we are going to do we're going to jam the norse into um what i'm guessing is about 200 words uh the listeners should know that it's very it's very nerve-wracking actually to be quoted by someone else while you're watching them so so they uh i just interrupted ken again i i think uh i think this sets the stage Against this vibrant backdrop of indigenous life in the late woodland, Norse visits to North America were of little consequence, despite the inordinate attention the visits receive. And so uh, I I think that kind of sums it up right there. But uh, but we do need to talk about the Norse because the Norse do happen during the late woodland. Um, They arrive at uh, what's probably the only convincing uh, and, and really the only what I would call real um north settlement in north america uh, uh despite uh rumors of a you know uh, burials with swords and um and other things um which uh so we will talk about this toward the end of the show but um we're, we've got an episode coming up on pseudo archaeology uh and uh for those of you who have stories about um some of the tales of new brunswick archaeology that you may have heard um, including the Dauphin arriving in New Brunswick uh, during the French Revolution. Um, uh, uh, we would love to hear those because as an archaeologist working in the province for over a decade, um, I have had some uh, highly engaged individuals uh, looking for services to find 
these uh, unique uh, aspects of New Brunswick history that do not exist. But it probably disengaged individuals too. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> um, Lanza Meadows. Okay, it's real. It's I a mean, Cole's notes. It is real. It is yeah. Real. So you know, yeah, the the Norse were there. Um, the there's a unique. So my my understanding about the geology of Newfoundland uh, has been ascertained exclusively, uh, actually over coffee with Alice Kelly, who's a great geoarchaeologist at the University of Maine. A good colleague. A very real geoarchaeologist too. Yeah, like it's serious like knows the geology knows the archaeology sort of geoarchaeologist um and alice basically explained to me that the location of blanta meadows is sort of unique in its preservation setting that it wouldn't be eroded because it's actually uh basically lifted somewhat and the uh, and so so rather than being you know there are winners and losers in how geology works and so it is not submerged in the way that other places like that on other coastlines would be submerged right so this it's is kind of the same uniquely thing like, preserved this is like phillips garden right yeah i think like it's why exactly the is so well preserved like, yeah i think uh, it's the, exactly the same thing yeah 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 and for the listener it's also on a ley line <laughs> Ken, we promised we weren't going to work blue. We don't call them that anymore. <laughs> um, and, um, uh, but so, so it's real. I mean, like there, yeah. there were there were Norse about a thousand years ago at Lanta Meadow. That is real. What isn't real is you know all the rune stones people report. The Yarmouth rune stone, you know, at the Yarmouth Historical Society. That's not real. I mean, it's. <laughs> It's real. I mean, you know, it, depending on your epistemology, but it's not really Norse. Um, yeah. And 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 part of the reason that people are annoyed about this, I think, justifiably, is that there's a real like, oh, white people, you know, showed up and caused, you know, whatever, right? Yeah. Be- before white people actually caused much of anything, right? What what seems like happened to connect this a little bit more to the maritime peninsula is that Norse people showed up. Uh, they were there for a while. Didn't go very well. Uh, it was sort of an outpost. Like it was basically like uh, they relied on Greenland and, and other like sort of more established settlements, um, you know, back in the homeland yeah. or close by to basically for resources and things. And um, they, they were kind of, you know, they were exploring and they definitely did some traveling, right? Like, you know, sure. there's, there's hints that, um, you know, uh, based on the writings, like, uh, uh, you know, there's some speculation that um, they, they saw New Brunswick or parts of it uh, because of this notion that Vinland, which, you know, wild grape doesn't grow beyond a certain region. Really, this lower Wolostok is kind of the northern limit of where wild grape might grow. And for the, if Vinland actually is talking about, you know, wine and grapes, which we don't know for sure it is, um, they are probably talking about, um, or, or you know, grapes are arriving by trade in Newfoundland, which yeah. is, I think, the point that you're getting at. Right. I mean, so the, well, the point I was actually going to get at is, is, so, you know, I read the, you know, the Crummy Penguin edition translated of the sagas, right? Yeah. Um, under maybe a bit of the influence of the grape, um, while, <laughs> while, while in a hammock in Waterville, Maine, 
in the early, I think early days of the pandemic, actually. Just past um, the Hannafords, right? It was just past the Hannafords, absolutely. But but it was easy to find because I'd put some flagging tape up beside yep. the hammock. Uh, yep. And so read this and it just was sort of reminded, I'd read excerpts before, kind of reminded that like the sagas will tell you anything you want them to tell you. <laughs> You know? <laughs> they speak to you yeah they do they really it's like they don't make i mean you know maybe it makes sense in the original language but certainly in english you can look at the sagas what, what's, uh, what's dave black's line when somebody says let the data speak and he's like yeah no, the, the data doesn't speak the data must be interpreted yeah yeah exactly right right but there's another great great line uh of dave's about this which i which maybe i'm gonna misquote but the but it's basically like that um you know, I'd like you to imagine uh, that during this period, six guys from Cahokia, you know, rolled into New Brunswick and hung out for a long weekend. Okay, imagine that. Now imagine that we spend half of Canada's archaeology budget trying to find their campsite. <laughs> that's sort of what uh, <laughs> what Norse is like. Yeah, um, that, I mean, that's not uh, that's not far off. Yeah, and, I mean, and so Brigitte Wallace, who, you know, you know, is... You know, I don't know. Maybe she's the only serious uh, archaeologist working out who worked on Norse uh, in the region. Speculated that Hop, which is named in the sagas, is maybe on the Miramichi. Is that right? Uh, yeah, it could be. I I can't. I I will admit when I read the Penguin translation, uh, I was definitely an undergrad and. Uh, <laughs> Uh, I don't think it was the wine that was influencing my <laughs> reading at that point. So, <laughs> yeah. So I mean, speaking of uh, of uh, uh, low level food producing and and uh... <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, but so so it's real. Does it matter? Probably not. Does it seem to have influenced indigenous culture? No, not really. Um, and the... but it does give us an excellent segue. To the Goddard site. To the Goddard site. Oh, good. Okay. That's we've what made it hoping. to the Maritimes. No, we've made it to Maine. Well, but oh yeah, Maine Maritimes. We're <laughs> yeah, in the, the Maritime Maritimes Peninsula. Region. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mar- Maritime Peninsula. That's uh... <laughs> right. Um, the I, so I've got a real soft spot in my heart for the Goddard site because uh, Ken, are you officially the book review editor for CJA now? No, you're not. No. Until uh. The future, okay. So probably this fall. To be. Okay, I need to get my dissertation. I like. I need to have a degree um, and be be not writing a thesis. Right, right, right. Yeah. Uh, the listeners should know that. For those of you the, with your bingo dabbers, you may have just gotten a bingo. Yeah, yeah, you may have the. Uh, <laughs> the, the <laughs> Gary, if you're listening, can can promises it's done. Okay, <laughs> it's done. <laughs> um. And uh, so, so anyway, so the the Goddard book, which you know, was that Ben, well, I'm, I anyway, I'm I'm what I'm gonna say is I was just very grateful that when I reviewed the book about the Goddard site uh, for Catherine Patton, who's the great book review editor for CJA, mm-hmm. um, she let me keep in, didn't even comment on that. I thought one of Cox's great contributions was that he discussed the Goddard site without making a saga out of the penny. And yep. uh, the penny is that uh, in at the site in Blue Hill, uh, no, on Penobscot Bay in Maine. Uh, Blue, yeah, it's yeah. Blue Hill Bay, which Blue I think Bay, is 
which is in Penobscot Bay. Exactly. It's a it's a smaller bay of Penobscot Bay. Yeah, that's right. Um, we might be about to get the bluest blooded uh, Hakuna Arata of our life here. Um, did I just explain Maine geography to you? you? Just explain Maine geography to me. You did. Oh man. They. uh, I mean, yeah. What the. I don't know if I can find here. if I can find Sacco at 7 p.m. with bad instructions. <laughs> Just follow the smell of the paella. Um, <laughs> is uh, and <laughs> is that um, so? Anyway, so this this Norse coin shows up at this late wooden archaeological site in Maine, and basically madness ensues. Right, so the guy that found this, there's there's still a. a a real chance that this coin is a hoax. So do, uh, the, I should say, I'm, I'm a believer. I think this coin is a legitimate Norse coin at the Goddard site. But what do you think? I, I, I think it's a kind of 60-40 proposition. I, I think it's real. Like, I, yeah. I, you know, and I think I think that, um, what was it, Gulbrecht uh, had that article came out a couple of years ago that kind of like, yeah, he, he sort of reviews all of the criteria. I mean, like, it's without question a Norse coin. Yeah. Um, the context seems like, you know, the yeah, uh, these were sort of avocational archaeologists that excavated a, the bulk of the early excavations at the site, um, if I'm remembering correctly. Yeah, a guy named Melgren. Yeah. Um, and uh, and and they kind of, they did it systematically, but weren't trained professionals, basically. Yeah. Um, and they didn't keep a ton of notes. Um, no. And people were suspicious because Melgren was a coin collector. Right. Okay. And so there's this this idea that it might be a hoax that he had planted the coin. I think one argument against that would be, and what I've just always thought was compelling was that when he found the coin, it was mis mis it wasn't identified as a Norse coin until like ten years later. Yeah. Which, you know, if if I were going to plant a Norse coin, that's like a real long game, you know, move yeah. just to be like, well, they'll find out it's Norse after I'm dead, you know. Um. And and we would be remiss if we didn't talk about the Goddard site in the context of the late woodland, because it is sort of the um, classic example on the East coast. I mean, we're probably uh, Goddard Melanson in, um, in the, on the, along the Gaspero river, um, the Gaspero uh, is it end of Dyke. Uh, yeah. End of Dyke, I guess you're calling it now. End yeah. of Dyke site. Um, and LD of 24 too. LD of 24 to a certain degree. And, uh, uh, and the Sheldon, the Sheldon site. That's right. Yep. Um, are, are what we would conceive of as um, villages, right? Like these are without question, these are aggregation sites. Um, and, you know, ba- both Gabe and I have looked at the collection from the Goddard site uh, at the uh, Mean State Museum in the uh, old liquor store. Uh, uh, <laughs> that's uh, the, the storage room there. Um, and, you know, I've only seen a fraction of the collection, but I've oh, never seen an architect an archaeological site that has trays of scrapers that are so similar in shape and size that they are like being pumped out like like a commodity almost right um and and a whole bunch of diverse materials there but part of the reason that leads to the credibility to bring it back to the coin is that what you have at goddard is um you have a bunch of uh, uh you have a lot of ramature so this is material coming from Northern Labrador, which we'll probably talk about later, um, later in the episode or or in two weeks, since we're what like two hours in already. Uh, Are we really? Uh, no, I don't. I don't think so. Not yet. 
Uh, no, we are. It's uh, we're, we're nearing. We're nearing. Yeah, it's but uh, quarter but, past eleven here in yeah, uh, <laughs> live for a die country. <laughs> but um, uh, in addition, there were also a couple of objects that were possibly of Dorset origin. That's Is right. That um, correct? Yeah, some possible uh, like a Dorset sled runner, basically. Yeah, and a and an all. Is, am I misremembering that? Uh, I can't remember about the all, but I remember the the possible Dorset sled runner. Um, uh, and you know, yeah, and I mean, I just said the Rama. I think is is convincing too. Yeah, and so and so, what you have is um, Goddard is is a an indigenous site that was occupied from at least the late Archaic um, up until you know the contact period, basically. Um, in various different configurations. So the it's, it's kind of interesting. The later cake stuff is sort of in one area. Um, there's a Susquehanna component, if I'm... I am not no, sure. No, no, I, I don't know if that's I right. I think you might be conflating Turner Farm with Goddard. Yeah, yeah. So, But there's a later cake component at Goddard. Is that right? Uh, I'm not sure. Well, now I'm, now I'm, now I'm going to be kicking myself about this. There's an earlier archaic component isn't there that is sort of sequestered off you know what i'm gonna check check the ball over to my shelf here yeah so the listener can't see but ken is is actually undoing the is it called baffling is that what baffling baffling yeah yeah Yeah. and ken is flipping through the goddard site which um this is is available for for purchase yeah like for for next to nothing it's like is it 15 bucks from the main society or something like that Something like that. So Goddard, That's 15 a bucks American. Village. So it's 123 Canadian. But <laughs> yeah. But if you if you uh, if you ask Gabe to buy it for you, he'll drive it across the border and then mail it using Canadian postage. So yeah, you, yeah, exactly. Yeah, you don't yeah. need so to have it. Cost you 108 uh, Canadian at that rate. <laughs> There's definitely an early wood, woodland component there. There's some. Yeah, I remember the early of, woodland. Um, hold on. But I just don't remember. Well, these so look, these look, those look terminal archaic. Is there terminal archaic there? Okay. Narrow stemmed points. Oh, that's a good sign. Okay. That, well, he cuts it. Yeah, here we go. Susquehanna transition oh, good, archaic. Okay. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay, and Moorhead well. axis. I was right. Oh, great. Okay, I stand corrected. Yeah. So there is a a Moorhead component, um, which is spatially segregated from the rest of the site, sort of on the west end. Over on Turner Farm. <laughs> <laughs> no, there's slate bayonets and everything. Oh, you're right. Okay, yeah, there are. Yeah, I'm remembering this now. Incised ones too. Yeah, well, that's um, the best kind. and plummets. Yeah. Um, and then there is uh, a Susquehanna component that looks like they're probably, um, I want to say squib, not uh, Atlantic, Atlantic points. Oh, are they okay? Cool. Yeah. <laughs> the listener um, will recall our our. How much when we talked about uh, the transitional cake that we really trusted the uh, the detailed? Are, are you sure they're not Coburns? If you squint, they could be Coburns. Heck, if I know. Yeah, um, all right. Heck, if anyone does. There's actually a date. Oh, is it thirty four eighty five plus or minus sixty five BP? That's actually like that's pretty good date. That's a pretty good date. Yeah. Um, and also I do like that the early woodland box base points are real box base points. Like they've like, you know, well, it's cause they're gross water end blades. So that's actually not a bad, yeah, that's, yeah, <laughs> that, that, that is possibly, yeah, that's very, yeah, that's a good point. Um, the, so the listeners should know that we've just gone complete inside baseball on this Sorry, Dorset end blades, but the, yeah, yeah, gross, yeah, 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 anyway, yeah, and, yeah, um, but we talked uh, about that in the early woodland. We did that. Some yeah. of these these side notch 
uh, box space points in the early woodland uh, could be uh, could be a metawood thing, but also could be yeah. um, indic- indicative of of exchange to the north as well. That's right. Yeah. Um, and so and so this exchange to the north persists, um, or it reappears in the late woodland, um, uh, as we talked about the middle woodland being a little bit of a um, yeah, a little bit of contraction, sort of a little bit of contraction. Localization. Yeah. I was reading something loring the boundary maintenance paper. That's a good paper, isn't it? Yeah. It is. So Steve Loring in his uh, boundary maintenance paper, 1985, um, which is a fantastic paper, ostensibly about the early woodland, but talks about how some of the contraction in the middle woodland uh, may be as a result, to bring it back to the late woodland, (laughs) the development of agriculture in other parts of um, sort of in the the middle woodland in other parts of, of Eastern North America, you have um, the development of agriculture and that what that may have done is actually set the sort of stage for territories right and so yeah. b- more bounded spaces basically existing during the mar- uh, the middle woodland which is what we kind of speculate is mm-hmm. happening in the maritimes as well um and that you know uh what, what this this notion of the other or or sort of identity and and sort of ethnicity and sort of identifying yourself in um in contrast to someone else, right? And so what you do is maybe for a little while, you sort of pull back and you're sort of closer to home. You're sort of with the people that you identify with, but then um, you have this explosion of trade in the late woodland, which may be basically a function of negotiating again with groups that are not yours, but, uh, but that you find ways to sort of negotiate these political and social um, changes that have gone on. Uh, and, and uh, you know, you're moving brightly colored scrapers around the landscape now, um, that kind of thing. So, yeah. And, uh, and Brian talked to Brian Robinson talked about boundary maintenance as well. Bring, just, I guess, to bring it back to Maine, we're getting closer. Yep. Uh, <laughs> uh, you talked about that. So there are these in the late, late woodland, most, in most of like New England, the rest of the Northeast, there these points that are shaped like triangles that are called Levana points. Um, and they are not Madison's the kind. Well, those in, are, those in are the Southern smaller Ontario. ones, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, but they're but they're still triangles. They didn't but, didn't Amy do a paper where she yeah, quantified quantified the size of them and basically she figured out they're the same? Not not the not the size, but the the shapes so she did the I shape think, yeah is it called fourier analysis elliptical fourier analysis yeah yeah and and but i think she actually found that they are legitimately different oh okay yeah maybe i'm misremembering that but uh, yeah. amy fox um we'll put that paper in the show notes right yeah yeah um, um uh, i'm making a note here to do that um the uh because we know we know the new brunswick archaeology listener if there's one thing they're passionate about it's typology. It is. Yeah. Yeah. They love a rock. They love a pointy rock. And they love articles that we put in the show notes that they probably can't get because they're embargoed to uh, uh, educational institutions only. That is frustrating. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's possible the show notes are pointless. Um, Gabe says, hopefully, because he you know, realizes it may be three in the morning before we're done this episode. And I'm, I'm you know, climbing a mountain tomorrow. Um, but uh so anyway, so these triangular points, they really persist to like the Kennebec River. 
you know, yep. they, they sort of, you, you, you get occasionally you get Lamont points, but like a late Woodland point, like in Port Jolly Harbor, Nova Scotia, do you like that? I'm studiously avoiding New Brunswick here. Yeah. Um, will be a, a little dinky, tiny corner notch thing. And, and when we say dinky, tiny, like we're talking projectile points that are probably the size of like the last knuckle on your thumb to the end of your thumb. Yeah. I was with Ken when he found his first ever one, actually. The, uh, we were actually in this house floor and, and Ken's scraping away and he's It'd be great if I find a projectile point. I was like, yeah, yeah, Ken, Ken, Ken. And he's like, oh no, it'd just be fantastic. Yeah, you know, I just, I think we're going to find Ken. It just, and the listener will know this. It's not the first time I've had to interrupt Ken. And Ken, look under your trowel. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But uh, that's a fun season. Um, that was a fun season. Yeah. Um, okay. But anyway, so, so boundary maintenance, territoriality, these are also, these are hallmarks of, uh social political complexity which we're talking about earlier um are we at out of the blue into the black i think so because we'll get back to projectile points and uh, yeah. when we talk about what's what technology yeah i think so too so um so, so we've left we've left newfoundland yeah we've left the norse behind yeah on to uh, japan <laughs> we're, we're going to talk about oman and uh, uh <laughs> A variety of <laughs> of notched points that they find. Uh, um, so we're back into the quad. West of the Rockies, you're on the air. <laughs> <laughs> What's the mountain range in the middle of the Pacific? The uh, uh, the Pacific uh, Rim is that what it is? Something like that. Anyway. I can't remember. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so um, out of the blue and into the black. A response to David Sanger's quaddy tradition. So why don't we start with the quaddy tradition? Sure, I'm going to let okay. you explain this because it it has confused me since I was an undergrad. <laughs> <laughs> the um the the part of the reason this is confusing is that uh so I was reading this thing was for reasons that will become apparent to the listener in the next season. Ken and I have both been casually interested in bibliometrics for a while. Uh, which is basically measuring an academic's output and, uh, you know, by quantifying their citations. Did you we'll just get... drop that there's going to be a season two of the New Brunswick Archaeology podcast? <laughs> Not at this rate there. Well, we'll never get through season one. Um, <laughs> and but uh, but one of the problems with bibliometrics <laughs> we're not even close to the topic. <laughs> but one of the problems with bibliometrics is that there are lots of things to get published that are just like kind of wrong you know, and there was this super uh, kind of raucous, fun debate, actually, maybe it was less fun if you were in it, but it's fun to read, where all the big deals in Northeast archaeology, basically, each one of them wrote a paper, uh, almost, all, you know, usually an explicit argument with somebody else about whether or not um, Sheldon's had stratigraphic integrity. So basically, whether, whether you could trust radiocarbonates from particular levels in shellmans or whether everything was shell heaps whether everything was moving around in them yeah. so it and started so, so whether whether or not for the listener when we're talking about stratigraphy whether or not shell heaps looked uh acted like uh soil strat uh, strata so like whether or not when we were talking about like uh, stratified sites being you know these sort of alternating layers of cultural and natural deposits whether or not you were actually able to see that same type of stratigraphic relationship in 
shell deposits, which as we've talked about before, in some cases are like 95% shell and, you know, 5% soil and artifacts. Yeah, exactly. And um, so this great, really robust conversation. We talked about it a little bit uh, last week. Um, like everyone's involved, you know, Bruce Bork, Danny Dinkas. I think it starts with Louis Brennan. He's an avocational archaeologist, editor of AENA for a long time. Um, but the way it's connected to bibliometrics is that I had read once that, you know, Noam Chomsky, who is his political work, is an important linguist, that he had just written a paper once that ended apparently like an entire line of publications. There have been like 300 publications, and it turned out they were all wrong. And his paper just kind of corrected some major misunderstanding in these publications. And so, in much the same way, Dave Black's either 1991 or 1993, depending on which version you have, paper um, about stratigraphic integrity and shell middens kind of said, yep, <laughs> they have stratigraphic <laughs> integrity, <laughs> which, you know, other people had said too, but Dave really kind of solved the problem, you know? Yeah. Um, you know, art, like Arts piece had kind of led up to some of this too. And, but there's a thing that, that was going on prior to this with the quality tradition, which I, and I think that there we can say in hindsight. And so I, I kind of want to be careful, like describing this. And I kind of try to explain this to students too. Many of my students work on this, that is a very understandable thing. If you're working in a place where there just hasn't been much work in the region, that what you've got to kind of do is just get a handle on the culture history. You've got to get a handle on time, right? So the natural thing to do is to go after the big sites um big deep sites and so what you do is you target big deep sites and as a result your impressions are going to be shaded by those big deep sites yeah. so that's one thing it's, that's a, going it's on. the same as like um you know a lot of what we knew about the early woodland for the longest time and the late archaic for the longest time was all cemetery information like absolutely you know, yeah. information right so it, it obscures your picture of what is actually going on in day-to-day -day life life totally yeah so you so you always tell my kind of students or they're not my kind of students what i kind of always tell my students is that uh some of them are kind of my students some, i don't know I yeah 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 if you're a listening student you should be more more than kind of a student um is that uh the, so the other thing that's going on right is you got to think about you know radiocarbon dates suck they're getting like radiocarbon dates of like plus or minus 120 you know if you calibrate them they just are probably woodland you know, right um and uh and you know there's all sorts of limitations in the work and all this stuff and uh screening is new right not everyone is screening um this is where we don't name names on this podcast right um and and if they are screening they're not even using quarter inch mesh six right. millimeter yeah absolutely uh, yeah they're uh, using is this at only inch? six millimeters i didn't know um six point yeah, no, I, something yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah, okay, sure. What's that in furlongs? Um, and uh, <laughs> it's about a third of an arpent. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Three parsecs. Um, and uh, and so what? What folks are are kind of learning about this? They're just like necessary limitations, right? So, what what Dave work does uh, is he comes in and he basically says, okay, there's this there's this absolutely key revelation which is that we can trust shell middens right we can we can trust that 
what we think, the layers in which they were deposited, we can identify them. So we can resolve and we know that what was in them has probably not shifted around a lot. So yeah. we can treat them like we treat other archaeological sites. And as somebody who is not a an archaeologist who generally works on shell bearing deposits, for me, this was really cool to see at Port Jolly, where like you could actually tell the difference. Like you could look at these stratigraphic profiles and you could look at the content of the types of shellfish that were there, the size of the shellfish. Um, and, and you could see like, you know, sort of change through time. It was also interesting how the shellfish got smaller through time, you know, like that. that yeah. 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 So, well, and at Port Jolly, it's uh, big clams, small clams, and medium clams. <laughs> yeah. So, this is an extra large clam. Uh, but it's pretty much my RR, like all the way down. Um, and so, the, but and then Dave's other insight is that, um, well, so I'm going to, I'm going to share Dave's other insight just through a personal story. Um, so, uh, Brian Robinson, who, uh, important influence, the late Brian Robinson, great archaeologist, one of my undergrad, um, professors. And then later we wrote a thing together, which was great. Um, but who, who died fairly young. Um, he and I both, when I was a PhD student, I had a project, maybe, you know, I don't know, 4 million kilometers or 60 miles from where he was working. <laughs> and so he took his field school to come. Uh, visit mine and uh he uh i was excavating at a place called devil's head which is this that's in cal near callus maine uh calais maine for the uh, francophones in the audience and there are these these thin uh deposits in my um uh grant to the national science foundation to dig there had the the reviewers response it's something like reinick proposes to do a lot with a fairly um uncharismatic was the word sites at <laughs> these were these thin uninteresting you know sites but i got the money so it was good and uh but brian when he went and visited it he put it a little bit more a little bit less delicately and he sort of looked and he said yeah the kind of sites you and i are working on uh david sanger would have never and then he used a profanity that we no longer use on this show he never would have but he verbed it around with a site like this <laughs> and it's sort of true right because david sanger's like building this kind of culture history but david black started looking at sites on islands in the quadi region yeah and so and, and that and that was the other important thing with sanger is that he was working on mainland quadi sites he was not on he was on the coast but he wasn't out on the on the uh the islands that dot past maquati bay that's right yeah and so these kind of major insights of Dave's, which are huge, and I think actually like, you know, I mean, probably your and my career are going to, I mean, I certainly at least so far have been built on trying to deal, like, deal with the implications of this realization that there's um, changes in the Woodland period was that David Sanger had said, basically what's going on is these guys are, for the entire Woodland period, they are cold weather foragers. And they have a lot of residential mobility. So they're moving their whole residences around for the whole period. And they're not that actually interested in coastal resources. They're mostly hunting terrestrial things like servants, um, but they're doing it on the coast. And the only Just, thing that changes are their projectile points. And their ceramics. And their ceramics, yeah. Yeah. Um, 
And so what that actually is, though, is really more of kind of a description of a very particular kind of site in the region. So Dave's dissertation and his book. Dave um, Black. Dave Black's. Oh, yeah, this is really confusing, isn't it? Yeah, I, gotta... I, I for the for the listener that's not familiar, I did a paper at the CAs a few weeks ago uh, in the sessions in honor of Dave Black, uh, where I riffed on the uh, where you could talk about a Dave that worked in uh, New Brunswick and maritime archaeology between like 1985 and 1997. Uh, and you could you could talk you could, you could be talking about one of like 15 people, I think. Yeah, um, uh, that's so the, first so... names. There were Davises, too. Yeah, yeah. So these are the Daves I know, but uh, we're talking about David Black, stratigraphic integrity onto the islands. Okay. And so what we've got is then Dave basically sort of points out that, well, there's these some interesting changes here, right? We've got these late maritime woodland middens that have more soil and they've got less of the kind of dense softshell clam. And in the, the reason it's called out of the blue into the black is in the middle woodland there's uh there's sort of like so much white softshell clam that the little bit of muscle that's also in the midden stands out as kind of a blue like stain on it so it's out of the blue and then uh in the late woodland there's also it's a black soil so there's this big structural shift right where you've got soil mixed in with the shell so you know is shell becoming less important kind of what's going on and then also in the late maritime woodland you've got more terrestrial resources and somewhat fewer sea mammals so fewer seals and you also start to see some pit features which might mean storage so in other words let's talk to you about hunter-gatherer theory again for a minute <laughs> and so so ken kenny do you want to tackle binford 1980 or should i uh yeah uh so so basically I feel like we did the... this last episode and accidentally blew it up where we we're like let's talk about binford and then we we're like oh no let's let's talk about japan while we stall no, that was that was this episode we were talking about Japan. No, no, I was joking. Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. What yeah, is time? <laughs> what is... Time is a but... flat circle. Um, <laughs> so, so storage indicates um, essentially that people are staying in one place for longer periods of time. They're potentially overwintering in a particular location. Um, and as we talked about before, when we talked about the context of maize, um, if you are storing food. It means you are preparing to be in a particular place. You might not have access to particular resources at different times of the year. And so in this context, um, storage, uh, sites that are probably occupied for longer periods of time indicate that what we may have is a shift from uh, residential to logistical mobility. And so you have base camps where things are accumulating. Um, you have larger, larger, longer occupied sites and you have a greater number of these task-specific sites distributed throughout the landscape, as we had talked about in sort of this concept of the dispersed village idea. Um, and so maybe at a, a base camp, you are processing shellfish. You're doing, you know, you're eating, you're building houses, you've got storage and that sort of thing. Um, and at the same time, uh, distributed across these islands, you have these smaller task-specific sites where maybe you are um, hunting uh, seals, for example, right? Or you are um, catching a particular anadromous fish, uh, uh, you know, on the mainland Quadi region. Um, and so you are becoming more of what we would, um, what Binford would call a collector rather than a forager. And so you are collecting resources, you are smoking them, 
you're drying them, you're preserving them, and you're storing them to sort of um, uh, how does he how does he put this? It's like a uh, there's some like you know that like economic language about <laughs> that I get. There's some socio-technomic. There's some socio-technomic function here that I'm. Uh, there's there's language yeah. in this paper, but uh, but it's a, a fairly famous paper where he's drawing on ethnographic analogies, um, and uh, um, and basically saying that um, storage is one of these tenets of of collector behavior, um, and what we're seeing in this transition from the middle to the late woodland in the Quadi is is potentially this forager to collector transition and this logist uh, residential to logistical mobility transition. So in some ways, collectors and logistical mobility tend to uh, occur together and foragers and residential mobility tend to occur together. Um, and this isn't always a super neat package. Um, there's, there's definitely, these are spectrums. Um, these are sort of idealized hunter gatherers. Um, but, uh, but these behaviors are, are way to think about, um, different behavior uh, expressed through the archaeological record. Right. And so, so the, but, and sort of Dave's realization in this crucial paper was that in the late woodland, what we're seeing are fewer residential moves and more of these task specific space, task specific yeah. sites. So, yeah. which matters a lot, right? This is, this is a, a big deal because when we're thinking about hunter gatherers, now we're talking about hunter gatherer cultural change. We're talking about, you know, storage, which is a kind of maybe precursor of complexity, right? Because yeah. um, you really need, if you if you think about complexity, which we probably should have defined more carefully, but just the number of moving parts that you have in a society. One of the things that some of uh, your interactions might be predicated on are just having reserves that you could exchange, right? Or that you need to store, these kinds of things. Yeah. So this this opens or, up- a Or having enough food for people. Right. Sure. Yeah. You know, your, your population, pop, your population is, is growing. It's it's probably yeah. becoming a little bit more concentrated. You know, when we're when we're talking about this transition from foragers to collectors, we're also talking about sort of setting the stage for this transition to this sedentary, a potentially more sedentary population, which you know, following this unilinear progression is going to be you're going to become become less mobile. You're going to become more reliant on sort of stable resources. You're going to store more food to sort of like weather that those gaps in resources seasonally because you're not going to go to those resources. You're going to go to them, collect them, store them, and have them through, you know, to, to get you through. Um, and then you're going to grow your population and come up with more of these things. And this is where this notion of like, this is when things like domesticates and maize and that sort of stuff become integrated in. But but we don't we're not we're we're not there yet what we're seeing is this very important transition which hints at um a significant transition that's happening elsewhere at the, around this time where maize is being adopted and so what we're seeing is the same kind of transition from um foragers to collectors um where in other parts you're seeing a transition from foragers to sort of settled village horticulturalists we are still seeing that kind of transition but in a different it's it's playing out in a different way. It's not as um, overt as you know building walls around a village and growing corn. But would we, that be fair? I think that's totally fair, and I actually think that's that's a great setup to talk about intensification, right? So, one of the things that you might have in this kind of situation, one of the things that you get from planting corn would be that you're basically getting more you know calories out of a chunk of space, right? <laughs> that's that's yeah. one one way to think about it. But you can do that with other you know, corn is not the only thing you can that you you need to do that, right? So, um, 
and there can be different reasons for doing this, right? And I think uh, Jesse Webb's master's thesis is a great example of this, right? Where, so Jesse worked at uh, BGDS 15, which is a site uh, at Samworth Pond. Um, other people work there too. Um, I think he picked up their plum bob. So if they're looking for that, they should probably get in touch with Jesse. Um, and it uh, basically, Jesse, we, we talked about screen aperture. Um, and so some archaeologists at coastal sites don't use screens at all. And what screens are, they're, they basically use hardware mesh. And you what, whatever you excavate, if you don't find stuff uh, in situ, which is a kind of jerky way to say where it is. Um, <laughs> if you don't find it there, you you have kind of this backup, which is that you put it through this hardware mesh. And so in theory, all the small stuff should fall through the hardware mesh, but the artifacts, the bones, that sort of thing stay in. You can pick them out and then you can bag them. Um, the sort of standard now is quarter inch mesh. That's like your cultural resource management mesh. Um, Matt Betts and I use uh, eighth inch mesh on the coast. And by, by and I mean sort of like, and folks we work with use a much smaller mesh aperture on the coast. The UMaine folks sample, they use eighth inch mesh and some stuff on the coast. And what happens then is you pick up- And, and, I'm, a, and I'm a masochist. So I use eighth inch mesh at a quarry site. Oh, you are a masochist. You must've just pour it on the table. <laughs> just bag it up, throw it on the table, right? Um, but so what this means is that you get more small stuff. And listener, do you know what's small? Fish bones. Fish bones are very small. So Jesse, uh, our dear friend Jesse Webb uh, and great zooarchaeologist, um, likes to take bulk samples from sites and then put them through window mesh <laughs> <laughs> and then pick the bones out under light magnification. It turns out when you do that, that it's not as if people are necessarily living on the coast exploiting terrestrial mammals it's that they're eating tons of small fish and so you know how many at this site jesse figured that a one by one meter that's uh eight uh, uh that's that's um uh three tenths of a mile i think three tenths of a square mile um <laughs> uh square in uh at this site might have been the place of deposition for 3,100 tomcod. So that's one meter. That's 3,100 tomcod. Okay. Yeah. So and 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 the site itself. So just to give the listener a sense of like what the site, um, it's a it's a coastal. It's a it's a mainland site in the Quadi, but it's right on this um, sort of natural tidal pool, um, and it, it's really fascinating. There's this anthropogenic modification. So so essentially um, ancestral Wabanaki groups um, had modified this natural tidal pool, which essentially the tide came in, it washed up, it created these little pools, um, and then it would like sort of recede with low tide. They created these sort of sills um, uh, or, or small walls. Uh, it, it, archaeology really is a series of series small, small walls. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the old um, sketch, right? Yeah. Do you ever saw Eddie Azard biking in Toronto one time? Oh, did you really? Yeah, yeah. No kidding. Like, I was turning to go home from like Sherborne Street onto like uh, uh, onto Bloor, and yeah. this guy passed me in the bike, and I was like, "Holy, I swore again." Oh yeah, holy yeah. smokes, that's Eddie Azard. 
No uh, kidding. Anyway, the HBO yeah, specials yeah. were very funny. The one where where uh, where they came out of a book. What's that? That that the, no. the, one of the interests the HBO specials was a uh, but the book rolled in and opened up, <laughs> and and they emerged. It's very funny. Okay. The I highly recommend. It. Yeah, the watch them a lot in high school. Um. So uh. So this rock sale was created, and it's so the reason they're able to process. 3,100 Tomcod per meter squared is that um, they essentially created these ideal conditions for a fish that was running up a river um, and essentially catching a whole bunch of them. So, uh, you know, like you, these anadromous fish that run on um, like, so like Tomcod and like alewife um, or, or Gasparo, whatever you want to call it, um, run up the river uh, seasonally um, and to the point that, you know, Gasparo, they talk about, there's all these stories about the, the water boiling um, boiling silver, basically, with uh, and having seen it in person, it, it is really impressive to see Gasparo run up a river. Um, you can catch a whole bunch of them uh, at one time, and and but it takes a whole group of people, and it takes um, we. The reason we call this intensification is that to process thirty one hundred tomcod is not a task that a nuclear family is undertaking, <laughs> like. You're not you're not talking about I mean Jesse five... grew up on an apple farm, so he may have had seasons that felt like this. Um, yeah. But 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 uh but what's going on here is um is actually at the scale of of what we see on the West Coast among what we would call complex hunter-gatherers. Yeah. And and so complex hunter-gatherers, these are groups like the Tlinglet, right, would be an example, right? Where there's you know, uh, you know how complex are they? Well, they have slaves, right? You know, they're um, these these very you know elaborate political structures. They live in big houses. Um, they accumulate enormous amounts of things, mostly yeah. like focused on salmon. Yeah, and then every um, once in a while they set them on fire. Yeah, you know, or give them all away. Um, and so, you know, but but this maybe speaks to the just the ways in which hunter gatherer culture change can occur in ecologically rich environments that will support the extant population, right? Yeah. And, um, and so and so this is what's going on in the coast. Um, in the interior, for example, like in around the Grand Lakes region. Um, so uh, uh, we're in the middle woodland. Um, you're starting to see in the data from the lower Rolastog, so from a group of sites that Susan Blair looked at for her dissertation, um, and that were um, some one of which, so the Gemseg site described in the the um, edited volumes, Wallastigwig uh, at Gemseg. Um, there are also there's also this shift from what looks to be a forager to collector um, uh, process going on, and so it's 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 kind of the same thing is going on in the interior as well. And so what you're seeing is um, you don't get faunal preservation on the interior, um, so uh, we we don't know precisely what they were eating. Uh, because uh, other than actually, um, to a certain degree, we had talked about. Did we talk about isotopes already? Um, we, I think we did last episode. Last episode. So yeah. So um, uh, sampling some of these uh, ceramic vessels, extracting basically like fatty acids and 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 other residues from the inside of the vessels indicated that groups were probably consuming anadromous fish and and uh, maybe like seabirds and some terrestrial mammals and grassy plants and things like that but but essentially it looks like a very a kind of a similar diet to what's going on in the coast but along with that you get 
um, an increase in bulky and fragile tools such as pottery. So that's indicating that, you know, like bulk, like pottery takes a little bit longer to make. So you're staying in one place for maybe a little bit longer of time. Um, increase in the use of informal classes of artifacts, such as utilize and retouch flakes. So you're not making curated tools, which would indicate that you're moving around a lot more. You're actually using more what's called expedient tools. Um, you have an increase in the frequency of cortical specimens. So these are basically, again, indic indicative of expedient tools and that you don't need to worry about um, access to certain things. So you're- I'm, I'm gonna jump in here. You got to explain what cortical tools are. You can't just, oh, you can't okay. just send so, that out so to the reader. Yeah, yeah. Cortical, cortical yeah, yeah. tools. So uh, when we're talking about stone, when you're making um, uh, stone tools, you have primary sources. So from a bedrock source, the Washington Church source, for example, is a geological, um, uh, a natural geological occurrence of rock that you can go to and extract that rock. Um, same as like Munsungan and some other places. You have secondary sources as well, which are that, um, glacial processes um, take some of these rocks that occur in bedrock formations and they distribute them throughout the landscape. Um, in many cases, in parts of the, the lower Wolostog, for example, you actually have glacial processes that have resulted in a number of very fine-grained uh, toolstone materials, so stuff that's really good for making stone tools with, um, essentially appearing as river cobbles, right? And, and uh, or, you know, in sandbars and stuff like that. And so, um, uh, cortical materials would indicate that, uh, so this is the essentially the weathered exterior of a rock. And so in bedrock materials, generally you get less cortex because you are extracting rock directly from the bedrock. And so um, with Washtenaw Chert, for example, it doesn't have a real cortex, but it has what, what, what I like to call a rind, basically. And so because it's a limestone bedded rock, you have the very nice, beautiful translucent chert, and then you have this like a uh, calcite-rich limestone kind of brown mottled stuff that is kind of on the outside of it. And, and uh, if, you've, if you've ever seen, it, yeah, well, it, it's like a it's like the bread on a sandwich, basically, right? And so you've got whole wheat on the top, you got all your like beautiful mustard and pickles and and prosciutto and and uh maybe some um some fine cheeses so some cabbage gruyere in the middle there um and then then on the other side you get your whole wheat bread again but uh on a in a in a river cobble you have this cortical material so what you have is both like river action basically kind of wearing down the rock um but then you also have the chemical weathering process and so there's particular minerals that precipitate out of the rock or that are picked up from the you know the the water or the other processes and essentially create this sort of hardened exterior. And so when you're looking at stone tools, you can actually, just by looking at um, how they're made and the cortex, so the remnant exterior of the rock on it, you can actually maybe, maybe tell um, whether or not this rock originated from a bedrock source or whether it originated from a cobble source. And if you have groups picking up cobble sources, that would indicate that they are probably... Um, uh, they are not concerned about a need for um, stone tools. They are not kind of making things for the long term. They have access to this stuff. They can go send somebody out on a logistical four-way to go pick up some stone tools from the bedrock source. Um, they've got somebody working on that, basically, right? So you're you're more organized in the way that you're, as opposed to picking up rock in a seasonal round if you're residentially mobile. So you can only go to this quarry at, in the summer because you live in this other place in the winter. Now you're living in this one place and you say, say can you take your canoe, go down the river and get some chert because we need more chert. 
Um, and this is sort of the difference between, uh, you know, forgers and collectors and this logistical versus residential mobility. Um, and so, so essentially what you're seeing in the uh, interior is uh, technologies that are reflecting the same kind of processes that the faunal data and the the uh, subsistence data on the coast is telling us about the way that economies are changing um, and and uh, uh, mobility and settlement is changing in this middle to late woodland transition. Does that Fantastic. make sense? Fantastic. Uh, yeah, I I hope so. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the um... The, the listener can't tell. We're, we're looking at a three-quarter bottle. Uh, it's not really a bottle. It's a, it's a Nebuchadnezzar. Is that the size? <laughs> of Courvoisier. Um, I, I think it actually is. Called, it's called a Magnum, isn't it? That's well, what the think, big... There's, so, so there's another size beyond Magnum in those wine jugs, though. There are. There's there's a Jeroboam and there's a Nebuchadnezzar. Okay. Um, I, I got interested in large format bottles. They're called large format bottles. Um, <laughs> and... Uh, and uh, but so we we did a magnum once for a party, but they uh, but they're they're pretty hard to find the Nebuchadnezzars and the Jeroboams and those sorts of things. Um, so I've, I've never had one, but the uh, yeah, there's one think... that once you get really large, you actually have to um, decant them. The listener does not care. Maybe the listener cares a lot. There's some listener who's like, oh, that's what I've been waiting for. Um, but you actually have to decant them through um, tubing, like through rubber tubing, um, using a, a uh, this is going to twig the the paleo Indian archaeologists in the audience, but using a vacuum um, to get the wine to come up through the tubing and then into into a glass. And so but you can check this out on YouTube. It was a long pandemic, okay. And uh, <laughs> I thought, uh, you know, I thought it'd be great if I could get uh, Nebuchadnezzar, you know, of of marginal Pinot. The problem is that like any Nebuchadnezzar that's made is worth like more than a car. You know, yeah, it's like, yeah, th yeah, this is like what the Boston Bruins drank at this famous uh bar tab that they racked up. It was like a hundred thousand dollars when they won the Stanley Cup or something, right? Is that a, that's a cricket team? <laughs> that a... <laughs> that's an NHL hockey team game. Oh, oh, sorry, yeah, you're right. Yeah, okay, yeah. yeah, I believe they they play just down the road from your uh, your beloved Bo Sox. Oh, they must, they must, okay, yeah, um, and but, so, well... uh, and on the interior too, just to, to, to bring it to the late woodland, um. <laughs> Uh, yeah, you'll you'll notice that Gabe and I have been talking for some time. I I wrote a thesis where I was going to solve the late woodland. Um, yeah, uh, which uh, for the for the listener who's looking at produce uh, or pursuing graduate studies, um, take advice from me uh, because you're probably not going to listen to your supervisor when they tell you this is not actually a research problem to solve. Uh, don't embark on solving grand culture historical questions. Um, that's not, it's not a recipe for finishing. That's yeah, no. a recipe oh. for ending up in BC for about eight months to figure out what your master's is about. Yeah, no, focus on answering the box of artifacts in front of you and mostly <laughs> yeah. try answering it in terms of future research directions. That's a phrase you want to keep, keep close. Um, um, so, so the pattern that you're seeing in the middle woodland and toward the end of the middle woodland, uh, uh, in, in the data that Sue Blair talks about in her th thesis, uh, or dissertation is the same kind of things that we're seeing, uh, in the late woodland, um, in, in, or at least the view, very few examples of late woodland, uh, sites that we have in the lower Wolostok as well. And so, so, um, you have, uh, what appear to be kind of, um, 
uh, base camp sites like Fulton Island um, and a number of task specific sites and small campsites like at uh, Millbrook, for example, and um, at like Swan Creek Lake, where these are probably, you know, fishing locales. And I, th I think we'll talk about Millbrook uh, in another context here um, as well. But but basically what you're seeing are what appear to be um, sort of larger base camp sites and this distribution of small task specific um, shallow predominantly kind of like in the interior because there's no preservation small lithic sites is what christina reith calls them but uh essentially yeah, upland lithic scatters right yeah yeah so yeah. these are just essentially a result of of taphonomic conditions is all you got left is some lithics um and so you try to tell, tell a story through those yeah. lithic materials yeah cool um so that actually kind of made some of our transition here um we should make clear that uh we're pretty certain that that you know, there's, there's the late woodland. We're we're deep into a continuity narrative at this point in the podcast, but so we're we're talking about cultural change, but we're not talking about discontinuity at no. this point. So these these folks in in your in my conception anywhere directly descended from middle woodland folks. It's not like there's a new group, you know. Yeah, and and in some cases too, um, some of these late woodland sites persist into the later late woodland and into the post-contact period. And so they're occupying the exact same places um, where they encounter Europeans a few hundred years later. Mm -hmm. Yep. And in places like the Quadri region, but I mean, in Nova Scotia, uh, Dave Black and uh, Matt and I have talked about, they're even reoccupying basically the same wigwam floors, right? So yeah. They're just rejuvenated. It's almost like, you know, if you go to a campsite, right, there's the, you know, where the, the fire pit is and you know where the tent goes. It's, it's like that uh, through, through, through substantial time through the, through the woodland period. Yeah. Um, should we uh, appreciate the aspirated? Yes. Uh, the, the listener can't see, but Ken, in addition to having quilts all over his, uh, sorry, sorry, baffling all over his office now also has a mitten on his, uh, on his microphone which has uh, rendered his dulcet tones even more dulcet uh, or dulceter. You'll notice it has not slowed down my talking. <laughs> this, the listener can't see this, but behind Ken, I've hired someone to sneak up with a blow dart that's filled with a special <laughs> South African poison that allows me to... <laughs> this is great. The, the last time it was fantastic. The, the, uh, the dongle was failing, and every time Ken just bent over to pick up the dongle, I got to talk, so it was good. Um, but, uh, so we've actually talked about most of our key sites. We've got our list of key sites here. Um, was there anything we want to talk about before we talked about key sites? Uh, I think we should kind of do, uh, let's do a broad overview of technological changes. Oh, so, right. Okay. Yeah. 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 So, um, so you have, uh, in terms of ceramics, cord wrap stick, um, is, is CWS. That's the, uh, kind yeah. of the, the, the Vogue, um, uh, decoration motif punctates as well. So these are basically small, um, uh, indentations. And in some cases, uh, these are actually like they, they're holes drilled through the whole pot. Um, you see this also up in the great lakes region. And some of this may actually have a functional advantage in that you can fire a pot much quicker, um, at a higher temperature, uh, by having these punctates drilled through it because they relieve the stress on the clay is, is my understanding. My hazy understanding too, but the and and so we're talking about cord wrap stick, and so it's the idea that there's this. In some ways, I call it cord wrap implement. I think, but basically, it's this stick that someone's wrapped 
pour it around and use that to make the decoration on the outside of the pot. Probably the punctates yeah. are from the same stick that the cord but is wrapped around. The pointy end. Just use, yeah, just use the, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, you start to see shell temper. So we're talking at this point, we're talking about CP four, five, and six, um, which in the lower Vlasta, uh, Vinnie Bourgeois, for example, grouped the three of them together because there's so few ceramic remain, uh, um, ceramic vessels recovered from late woodland contexts in the lower Vlastog and in the interior more generally, that it's actually easier to kind of group these together. Um, and so uh, this is also a theme is that there are fewer ceramics the later you get in the late woodland. Um, uh, shell temper is kind of an interesting thing. I don't think we have time to get into it a whole lot, but, um, you know, the Mississippians really liked shell temper. It kind mm -hmm. of becomes a thing, what, about 1,200-ish years ago? Sort of like... Yeah, thereabouts. Almost kind of in a moment throughout all of Eastern North America. Yeah, um, so, in, so temper, the listener will remember, is the it's the aplastic material. So the basically, if you're going to fire a pot, you need to have, you got the ceramic, you've got the clay, which the is clay. plastic, yeah. but then you've got some aplastic, which allows that flex without the pot blowing up. You can use, yeah. but most people use, until this point, used grit. So they use dirt. Basically, yeah, so or, like like granite or sand and, and yeah. sort of like rock stuff. And then um, organics and shell become integrated. And some of this may be a functional thing. Again, it has to do with the temperature that you can fire a pot at. I believe that shell temper actually lowers the temperature. So you can actually, is that correct? Oh, I have you no can, idea, actually. You can fire them faster and at lower temperature or something like that. There is some sure. there's some speculation. I, 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 I may have that screwed up. That may be a, an erratum. But um, there's also, uh, so the shape of the pots starts to change. They become more globular. Um, so they, they get a little bit rounder. So the thinking is that a tapered bottom pot, for example, um, is required, is more associated with groups that are staying in one place for a longer period of time. Globular, globular pots are um, hold up better. And so they may be uh, an indication that, uh, or no, no, I've got that backwards, don't I? I don't know. It's every time I've read Deal, this, I found it sort of impossible to believe. Mike Deal wrote about this, didn't he? The, he did. The, yeah, he wrote about it recently. I just didn't understand it. Okay, I'm going to leave that. Cool. Um, pots be. So I'm going to wind back here and go. Yeah, yeah. Sounds uh, good. Pots yeah, become yeah. more globular. Um, that has some implications as it relates to uh, mobility. Um, and there's also um, some indication that. Uh, there, uh, there's sort of an increase in production in late woodland of pots. They become um, uh, less elaborate in terms of their construction. And Cora Woolsey has speculated that there also may be a shift in the ways that they're being viewed and that they have, um, they, toward the end of the late woodland, they cease to become utilitarian items and become uh, uh, more ritual items. Basically, they, they shift in the sort of cultural significance um, from primarily um, food um, vessels to vessels that maybe represent, um, have a something to do with life after death, basically, um, and are found in um, uh, um, the only late woodland pots, or the latest late woodland pots are found at a, the famous Skull Island burial site, which we'll talk about in a moment. Um, lithics, uh, so you have a greater number of exotic materials um, Bruce Bork in 1994 kind of talked about that uh, there's this sort of elaborate late woodland exchange network that sort of uh, fires up. 
both David Black and Susan Blair have talked about, um, and to a certain degree, uh, Kevin Leonard as well, um, Adrian Burke, a number of other people, basically, Actually, that... Just, just to interject, Art Species even talked about possibly it's an intensification of hunting fur bearers in the late woodland that uh, may be kind of mapped onto this exchange as well. Yeah, yeah, and Stephen Loring as well, that this That's is right. maybe being facilitated by uh, an indication of social complexity in that... Um, so groups are essentially exchanging uh, stone from their homelands. Um, this is part of sort of both a social and political thing where essentially you're negotiating with, as we had talked about earlier, groups that are maybe outside of your traditional territory. Maybe you are um, uh, uh, sort of ethnically distinct from one another um, at this point. And so you are finding ways to negotiate. And some of the things that we see archaeologically that may be indicative of that are these exotic lithics. So these lithics from distances um, what is it? Uh, um, Cheyenne McDonald's at 50 kilometers or more away from the bedrock yeah. source or mm -hmm. something like that. Um, uh, scrapers get smaller, uh, which is kind of interesting. Port Jolly, you go from, uh, so the classic late woodland scraper, uh, Uniface is a thumbnail scraper. And so you look at your thumbnail, um, that's kind of the shape of them. They're made on flakes, these sort of like sort of stunted flakes. Um, but in Port Jolly, they're like pinky nail scrapers. Mm -hmm. Tiny, um, yeah. Uh, they're tiny, like they're they're uh, incredibly small. Uh, again, that may be a function of them being winter sites, and so they're sort of maximizing their use of the lithics there. Kevin Leonard speculated that some of this um, exchange patterning may have a gender um, uh, uh, influence in that uh, there's, uh, we know that uh, historically, Wabanaki were marrying exogamously, which means that, um, you know, uh, women from one particular group were marrying external to their group. So um, a Mi'kmaq woman may marry a Penobscot man or something like that. Um, and so in the context of late woodland exchange, what we may be seeing is um, gynarchic exchange and that women are actually the ones who are perpetuating this exchange of particularly um, scrapers. And so uh, brightly colored scrapers, which are considered, um, scrapers are ethnographically and anthropologically considered to be more likely to be women's tools because they are associated with tasks that um, based on ethnographic analogy are so more Ken, associated. Should we, should we pause to discuss hunter-gatherer theory again? <laughs> yeah. So we're, <laughs> we're doing hunter-gatherer theory again. Um, <laughs> in most cases around the world, uh, cross-culturally, uh, uh, women's tasks involve processing animal hides, um, uh, you know, uh, processing food and that sort of thing, which scrapers are particularly well suited for, um, at least the types of scrapers that we find in the late woodland. Um, can compare that to, um, uh, what's her name? Catherine, Catherine Weedman, her research in Africa on yeah, yeah. scrapers being a man's tool. Um, and so there's, you know, there are obviously ethnographic examples where this is not the case, but this is one possible thing is that women are actually the ones who are effectuating this, this exchange network. Um, and so there are a great number of exotics in circulation, exotic materials in circulation. Um, and uh, uh, there is possibly a diagnostic late woodland toolkit um, throughout the region. This is um, uh, side and corner notch points, which at one time were thought to maybe pattern chronologically, but Adrian Burke has demonstrated uh, that's really difficult to res uh, resolve because we have so few radiocarbon dates from in good associations from late woodland contexts, um, but that- Which is because uh, they're so shallow, basically. Because they're shallow, yeah, yeah. because they're, the features are hard to see. So taphonomic processes, so natural processes contribute to 
these shallow sites, not even if there are, you know, hearth features there. So people built a campfire where we assume that they built a campfire in most cases. Um, the preservation conditions may not lend to the organics that were burned in that fire, preserving for us to be able to run uh, a successful radiocarbon date, as I have discovered in my own work. Um, <laughs> or, well, I wouldn't say unsuccessful. The radiocarbon date was successful, but it produced <laughs> it produced a date that was modern as opposed to uh, uh, as opposed to being late woodland. And so, but but part of the problem is too, as Adrian Burke has also uh, talked about in his 2002 article in the Far Northeast. Um, volume that uh, side and corner notch points persist as a point style into the post-contact period. And so the technology that you see in the late woodland is also conceivably the technology that we're seeing in the proto-contact and into proto-historic period and potentially into the historic period. And so possibly up into the 17th century, indigenous groups are still using primarily stone tools. Um, and even in the sites where we're getting intermixed with some European goods, you're getting a very similar technology that is small, informal flake tools, lots of end scrapers. And when you do get projectile points, they tend to be these corner and side notch points. And so um, we actually have kind of this conflated problem with, with index fossiling uh, uh, time. So, you know, we, we don't have that diagnostic projectile point to tell us how old this site is. We can speculate as probably no older than 1500 years ago, but it may also be as late as, you know, 300 years ago or 400 years ago, basically. And so, um, so that's a really tricky thing uh, that we have to navigate. And, and then finally, on the lithic technology, um, these informal scraping tools um, alongside um, uh, bipolar wedges, as they're called, or, or basically bipolar core tools, um, uh, are a number of basically a number of stone tools that are particularly well suited for tasks that are um, uh, processing, splitting, um, shaving, and uh, uh, working with wood or baskets and that sort of thing. And so what we think is that this is probably an indication of the expanded use of watercraft, in particular birch bark canoes. Um, and it may also indicate um, uh, also help explain the the dearth of clay ceramics and that we may have a shift in vessel technology toward the end of the late woodland where clay is sort of being replaced by um, baskets. So perishable technologies that we actually don't see archaeologically because of preservation issues. Um, and so like ash basketry, which is sort of like a, a you know, a classic Wabanaki um, art form uh, was probably a functional tool in the past where you could um, instead of making a clay pot, firing it and cooking your food in that, you heat up a bunch of stones and you boil your food in an ash or birch bark basket, um, which you've used a, a series of small, sharp tools that are, you know, not formalized in any way to to process. Is that uh, I think that, technological uh, change in, in 15 minutes? I think that's technological change in 15 minutes. Um, I've never heard Ken uh, explain anything that quickly. Um <laughs> I wonder what yeah. that's going to sound like when I listen back to it at two times speed. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, so we've only been talking for, as I glance at the clock. Uh, no, 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 no. So yeah, we're, we're, we might hit three hours on this one. Um, <laughs> so 
probably in the interest just of kind of sparing the listener, it's probably good that we've actually talked about most of our key sites already. Yeah. So I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to kind of summarize um, my key sites uh, that I threw on here fairly quickly, which is that basically we talked earlier about this kind of quadrature idea that there was, you know, uh, uh, there's basically temporal mixing. So we've got these kind of classic mainland um, coastal uh, mainland coastal sites in the quadri region, Minister's Island. And so Minister's Island, it's mainland because uh, uh, it we're calling it mainland because it's sort of mainland. It's connected by a gravel bar. Before contact, it was even more mainland than that. Um, Teachers Cove, where Steve Davis worked, found a bunch of house features. It's got middle and late woodland components. Uh, Carson, same idea. We talked about Sam Worth Pond, where Jesse worked, task specific. Um, Tom Cod, fishing site. Um, and then some of the key sites when Dave was doing the out of the blue into the black work uh, include sites like uh, Weir and Partridge Island. We've talked about Skull Island, where uh, up near Shediac, where Kevin Leonard worked at length. Um, and then uh, I think probably the next ones on this list, Ken, are really ones that are that are more your ballwork than mine. Yeah, yeah. And and so Skull Island is, um, I think we could probably talk about it to a certain degree in the post-contact um, mm-hmm. um, uh, episode as well. But it's a cemetery site on an island in Chidiac Harbor. Um, uh I, off the top of my head, I don't know how many burials were there. Um, the community in uh, Frosty Hollows, uh, Mi'kmaq community, um, or Fort Folly, sorry, uh, Mi'kmaq community uh, requested that Kevin Leonard uh, excavate this eroding site. Um, and um, the findings there are incredibly fascinating um, because they point to really interesting continuities in the ways that post-contact uh, Wabanaki were uh, burying their dead but also really strong connections to uh, how we view sort of woodland people as well. Uh, Woodwood, woodland, uh, Wabanaki, Um, some like, I mean, there's insights in, in, from that site that are kind of like hard to describe. There's this really evocative line where um, one of the burials is covered in um, a number of quartz flakes that, that are interpreted as maybe sort of, somebody looking up at the stars at night. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the projectile point morphology there is uh, the projectile points that were found at the site are so um, similar that uh, you would almost be, you would almost expect that one person was making these um, or, or a small group of very closely related artisans, which again is, is something that you would expect to see in uh, uh, sort of complex hunter gatherer societies is that, you have gotten to the point where there are people within your society that have become essentially artisans um, and are tasked with specific things. So like you make the stone tools that go into a burial context, for example, right? And so so there is either one person or a small group of people or one person who is teaching some people, this is how we make this particular type of projectile point, right? Mm-hmm. And there's a, there's a mainland site, CBDD4, on Chediac uh, Harbor, that where there's a projectile point made on Washtenaw Church, for example, that looks almost identical to the ones that are found at the Skull Island site, mm-hmm. and potentially indicate you know somebody was sitting there, looking out at the island and making points that are 
reminiscent of the ones that are found there, which is really fascinating. Yeah, I think. And so. I mean, and, and not to believe the Pueblo Islands are significant in Wabanaki cosmology, um, and you know, throughout uh, among East Indigenous groups, often associated with burials, actually. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the sites uh, I talked briefly about Millbrook, um, interesting site where uh, we have what appears to be. Um, sort of a continuation of, of probably bulk procurement of, of stone. So Susan Blair wrote this great paper about uh, uh, envisioning the ways that groups were collecting their stone from quarries, for example, like at Washtomoak Lake, where the quarry doesn't have like a great spot to, you can pick up the rocks there, but it's not a spot where you're going to work the rocks. And so what you might do is you pull your canoe up, throw a whole bunch of rocks in your canoe and then boat away to find a nice place to camp and then work the rocks there. And so Millbrook looks like maybe one of these places and the technology there um, looks like they were probably uh, 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 maintaining or fixing birch bark canoes. And, and we suspected that it was probably tied in with overland travel. Right. And so um, Gabe and I wrote this paper in 2015 talking about how I'll put it in the show notes. Uh, we're, we're trying, we're trying to get notes. the bibliometrics going on this. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, uh, how the site is particularly well suited to where you might pull a canoe out and start a portage over land to other parts of the lower Velostoke. So either to an adjacent watershed to another place over land. And that we know that groups were moving across, um, not just over water to get to particular places like, like a stone quarry, that they were using other travel routes through, through the land. And that sometimes this was done, um, you know, maybe at the end of the season where you stash your canoe at a particular location, and then you head into the interior for the, for the winter away from the water. Yeah, um, sight early, Creek... sight often, listener. That uh, <laughs> looks great in anyone's bibliography. Exactly. Uh, Swan Creek Lake uh, is a small campsite, uh, looks to be probably a wigwam, interior wigwam structure. Um, this is a site that I've actually wanted to revisit for some time. Um, I say it's late woodland because the technology looks late woodland. The dates came back 18th century, and so it's entirely <laughs> possible that this is a historic uh, Wolostogwig site. Um, uh, but uh, uh, I think that that site kind of probably deserves to have a couple extra radiocarbon dates run on it. Absolutely, yeah. Figure out a better deal. Um, you might have seen in the media during the construction of the Fundy Parkway uh, that there was a number of archaeological sites found in the Fundy area. Um, one of them in particular, BJDH3, is a really fascinating uh, late woodland site, probably dates to somewhere between 1100 and 900 years ago. It's been interpreted as a caribou interception site just be based on the lo local topography. Uh, you have, uh, I mean, it's it's interior, it's upland, it's in a spot that you would expect people to be probably traveling overland between you know, the coast, different watersheds, probably different traditional territories as well. And we have there, based on the lithics, you have a number of materials from Nova Scotia, so what would be called Minos Basin Cherts. You have Washtomoak Chert coming from the lower Wolostog. You also have a number of local materials, um, lots of notch points, utilized flakes, wedges, what you would expect in a late woodland assemblage, um, as well as um, CP4 and CP5 pottery, which is actually fairly rare on interior sites uh, to get uh, late woodland pottery um, and a number of charcoal fill filled pit features. Um, and so uh, uh, there's a report that you might be able to find um, if you know the right people. Um, and uh, you might, uh, we'll, we'll link to the media on that uh, sure. and uh, look forward That's to Christian Terrio's work, right? Christian Terrio's work. Yeah. Um, and uh there's also, uh, hearkening back to um, Penfield, uh, which we talked about during the week, on Pen, uh, uh, during the Paleo-Indian week, uh, there's a late woodland site there, and uh, there's Ramachurt there. 
Um, and that's about all we know. Um, there's a triangle point, possibly a Levana point. Um, and well, are we uh, even sure that it's triangular? I, I remember I was looking at the report earlier and I noticed they, they filled in the, the, the upper tip of the triangle. <laughs> it could, yeah, who knows? We don't know what the tip looks like, but yeah. uh, the base looks like a Levana point. Um, and then finally at Metapanagia, uh, so a landscape that was, uh, we talked about in the last, uh, probably a couple episodes ago in the context of early woodland um, archaeology, um, there's this sort of persistence of connection to landscape and to fisheries, um, and in particular in this location, sturgeon um, that persists into the post-contact period among the Mi'kmaq in Metapanagiag. Um, but there's a series of features on the Mount Terrace, um, a couple of which have been excavated that are referred to as Majipki and Dabugal Majipki, um, which are possibly sturgeon smoking pits. Um, we don't know. But uh, uh, again, conference paper on that. You might be able to Google um, and and find some reference to those. Um, I believe Pat Allen also wrote a report that was one of the New Brunswick manuscripts on those sites. Uh, I'm not sure. I remember seeing the conference paper and not being. I feel certain. like I feel like in the 2005 Oxbow one, she talks. Did she about, mention them? Which actually, I think you can find in a PDF. That, so that, we'll, that might be one of the online ones. We'll put, I can put that, that in the show notes. Yeah. So if um, if that's the one I'm thinking of, those two features are described there. Okay, um, great. And uh, and yeah, and so um, that's that's the key sites. That's the key sites. That's the key sites. Yeah, yeah. That's right. Listen, if you. St- if you stick around on the New Brunswick Archaeology podcast for two and a half hours, we will get you to the key local sites. Um, we okay, will talk but, about New Brunswick Archaeology. Yeah, I was going to say, but do we have two or three <laughs> Japanese analogs we could throw in here for the? You know, for uh, the... Yeah, I'll have to. I'll have to find a good Jomon. Uh, yeah, yeah. Equivalent. We're big in Nagasaki, um, so I think. It, are we ready for some hit pieces? I think. I think we're. I think we're moving into hits pieces. So um, we're going to, uh, the listeners should know that, that we're, just to remind you that we're, um, we're going to, we have an upcoming episode at some point, maybe the inaugural of season two or sometime in season two. I feel like it'd be a good way to kick off season two. I think it would be too. Um, we're going to have an episode on pseudo-archaeology. That's another one of those words that has a, um, what is it your kid calls them sneaky letters? <laughs> yeah, the sneaky letters. Yeah, sneaky yeah. P. Sneaky fee, that's right. Uh, and uh, uh, so, uh, pseudo-archaeology. And so uh, if you have some, uh, you know, questions about uh, Norse runestones, uh, there's that island in Nova Scotia I've, I've heard about. There might be a TV show about yeah, it. Like, might be a... for a tree or something. Yeah. Uh, yeah. If, if that one weeps uh, to mind. Uh, the send Dauphin. them in. Yeah, that's the one. Yep, that too. Yep. Um, and we will. Uh, we're going to endeavor to get some some pros about pseudoarchaeology on here. Um, and by that I mean about debunking pseudo. We're not going <laughs> to. We've got several friends who are pseudoarchaeologists. Who are... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. We will be. We will be. Uh, as my as my students at the University of Lethbridge have learned, um, uh, there's nothing that gets old Professor Ken more riled up than somebody bringing up the uh the tv show that we i just don't want to grace their name 
Well, see, uh, I'm also a little bit worried that we're going to put the Sioux in pseudo archaeology, you know. <laughs> so that'll be fun. That's that's a good point, actually. <laughs> um, so so the reason we bring this up is that uh, there's a recent article that came out in the just this last week in the SA Archaeological Record, which is actually available online to anybody um, who is not uh, whether you are in Society of American Ar- for American Archaeology member or not. So this is a um, a publication that the SA puts out. Um, actually really great. If you're into archaeology, um, it's a really great way to engage with the discipline um, and uh, and uh, learn about what's going on, kind of some of the um, sort of the hot topics in archaeology, I guess, yeah. is, is a good way to kind of view what's going on. Um, it's very contemporary. They've published about five times a year. Um, anyway, this article by John Hoops, Flint Dibble, and Carl Fegans, uh, Apocalypse Not, Archaeologists Respond to Pseudo-Archaeology. This is in particular... Um, they're focusing on the, what is it? Graham, uh, Hancock, right? The Graham Graham Hancock. Hancock. Yeah. Uh, 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 ancient something, ancient Ancient mysteries. uh, Is ancient aliens. uh, I I think, I think ancient aliens is something different. Um, it's, it's whatever the most recent show that is about, um, yeah, aliens uh, making pyramids. Aliens making, yeah, yeah. yeah, making. Uh, it's on Netflix, and you've probably seen it come up in your algorithm, uh, and uh, you may have watched it and enjoyed it and wondered what this guy was talking about. Um, and what they do is they break down um, the issues with uh, the way that the show is being presented, the issues in the way that archaeology is treated in the media more generally. Um, there's this real problematic uh, narrative about disenfranchising indigenous um, pasts by, you know, attributing everything that they did to aliens um, or to, you know, interlopers of some other kind. Um, and uh, interesting piece, and I think gets to a topic that's very top of mind um, and and certainly something that we as archaeologists who, you know, a part of the premise for doing this podcast was that we wanted to um, share facts with you um, in an age of, in what is this called, the post-truth era <laughs> i i believe so yeah i think i think uh yeah. living living in alberta now uh i can tell you we are firmly entrenched in the post-truth era uh yeah. based on the election results from this past monday so well, i can tell you one thing ken we've never had an election uh in in my country of birth that's made me ever ponder whether or not we were in a, a post pre or peri truth era yeah there um, you go yeah uh yeah, no, it's a, the, that's it is a good article that but I agree the whole um, it is worth kind of checking in the SAA archaeological record because it it uh, in general, I think. You know, they're short pieces, but they're often just kind of about what's what's hot in the discipline. Um, yeah, and they have it. They have an ongoing series, too, um, about um, decolonizing archaeology that comes up well, every every couple of issues yeah i mean the the recent one is uh michael shot and uh beck and not not the hip-hop but not it's not really hip-hop artist whatever he uh it's hip beck was like an indie artist yeah he's supposed I, to be the next I think he's Dylan. sort of one of these early indie darlings yeah the fact Isn't that he also that... like a he's got some weird religious thing too doesn't he oh, i'm, I'm sure he does I, I, aren't they all yeah, I think they are all. Yeah, they they might all be. I I remember Rolling Stone magazine told me he was the next Bob Dylan, and the fact that I know nothing about him makes me think that perhaps Rolling Stone was was wrong <laughs> about that. Um, well, Avril Lavigne is the next Bob Dylan, isn't she? No, that's so Avril Lavigne is the, the yeah. So so we can go for another hour here on this, but the um, no, a- Avril Lavigne is more Dylan esque than people give her credit for, and um, 
the uh, the song uh, in particular, I I've probably talked about this on this podcast before, but I I would encourage the listener the um, the Avril Lavigne the great Avril Lavigne uh, pop song, complicated, is actually basically the same song. You can imagine if it was sung by Bob Dylan as the song Positively Fourth Street, which uh, is available as a single or it's you know available on the uh, <clears throat> on the Greatest Hits album, um, but yeah, they're they're this, essentially the same song, and and I think uh, Avril is is underrated. That's that's the short version. The the pride of Napanee, Ontario. Um, yeah, 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 and and the the there's somewhere in Minnesota that Bob Dylan's from. Um, and then uh, we're gonna encourage the listener to <laughs> to. I mean, I would encourage the listener to immediately pause this, okay, and now listen to Complicated by Avril Lavigne, and then listen to Possibly Forestry by Bob Dylan, and just try to tell me I'm wrong, you know, so so <laughs> we'll put that in the listener mail once you've done that, you know, but I think you're going to be pleasantly surprised uh, and, and leave with a new uh, found admiration. Uh, and and maybe, um, maybe at some point we'll, we'll be able to play that music on the show. If we get if we get this grant we're going in for, yeah, 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 we might we might own Napanee, Ontario, if we get the kind of money we're asking for. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, th- I thought the boat, you know, the pirate radio boat would be better. Um, I won't just have a also... boom microphone. <laughs> the yeah, uh, it just goes boom. That's all it does. <laughs> um, we're gonna encourage the listener to uh, click on this register for historic places days thing. Yeah, and so um, basically the um, uh, Parks Canada and the National Trust, um, both uh, sort of Parks Canada's uh, government agency and National Trust is basically an arm's length organization that promotes heritage in Canada. Um, You'll remember a while back talking about the federal heritage legislation, the National Trust were actually the group that organized um, the uh, archaeological and heritage review of that legislation, which to my understanding is actually still um is is stalled in some political machinations that uh you follow us much more closely than i do but uh, um, i've not heard any updates so so uh we're at risk here i think of the legislation maybe disappearing into summer recess oh dear yeah um but uh but uh waiting for some updates there but uh basically this uh, historic places days. Um, so do you own or operate a place that has cultural significance and want to share its story with a national audience? Well, you can register your heritage place and join in, in the free national marketing marketing opportunity that reaches 2.4 million people. Um, this year, historic places days run from July 8th through July 23rd. Um, so you can join hundreds of sites across the country like, uh, uh, Squaggin, Port Lajoie, Fort Amherst, and PEI, or the archives in uh, Toronto, Ontario. Um, and we encourage registrations of all kinds. So this is we being the National Trust in Parks Canada. We encourage to local landmarks and gardens, to geocaches and more. Uh, this free awareness program uh, is hosted by the National Trust in Parks Canada. So um Basically, uh, it's an opportunity for those of you who may be associated with historical societies or other small community groups. Um, it's an opportunity for you to promo uh, essentially, you know, where it is you work, um, uh, where it is that you want people to come in, and uh, you get it free, uh, free some free advertising to promote it uh, for the middle of the summer when you might have people passing through your town with a little bit more frequency. And, uh, and uh, I think it's a great opportunity. 
I think so too. And well, Ken, it's uh, it's well into tomorrow here, and I'm looking at a half finished <laughs> Balthazar. That's uh, 12 liters or 36 gallons of Couvoisier. Um, so should we uh, should we uh, bid the the listener good night or good morning, wherever you may be, um, and uh, and say that we'll see them next fortnight when we're going to talk about uh, the protostoric or the contact period. I think so. And and that's actually a good uh, good cue because uh, I'm getting an energy saving warning here that uh that the dongle that I have Uh-oh. that is supposed to that is supposed to support um power charging um while also offering extra USB ports um apparently does not support power charging. And so okay. uh, so I'm 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 operating on real low battery here. Well, so I'm off to bed and Ken is off to Ice's dongle, but we will uh we will see you all <laughs> Uh, all right, we won't see you all. No one will see anyone. We'll uh, we'll talk to y'all uh, in a fortnight for the Proto Stark. It's been a pleasure as always. And yeah, the music uh, key is gonna have to go in real early on that. One. <laughs> <laughs> Good night, listener. Good night. Thanks listener. for sticking with us. Good morning, listener. <laughs>